Bishop James Pike was one of the most controversial and paradoxical clergymen of our century. He was a lawyer turned priest. A Roman Catholic turned Episcopalian. He drew thousands into the church, yet was almost thrown out as a heretic. Some called him genius. When he went to mediums and seances, however, they called him mad. At last, he faced his destiny alone in the wilderness. His personal quest was for the answer to man's oldest mystery. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth beaming straight from Ohio and California to your brain holes. We are your personal dickheads. We have channeled, uh, we've started a seance and channeled our dead suicided sons uh, uh, soul. That doesn't make any sense. Whatever. Uh, <laughs> uh, it made sense. We channeled our suicided son's soul. So trigger warning if you're offended by conversations yeah, about that. suicide. There's two of them involved in this book. So we are here today to talk about the transmigration of Timothy Archer. We will get there in a little bit. This is the last book that Phil wrote in his lifetime. So uh, it's a pretty big one. Um, but we're going to start off like we always do with the PKD news. Well, let's do so. Let's do some introductions first before we. Oh, yeah, that's right. We should introduce ourselves <laughs> uh, for the second time returning as an official co-host. Me? Professor David. Harlan Wilson. Welcome Hello. back. Tell the folks who you are and what you do. Uh, my name is D. Harlan Wilson. I read, I write, I sleep, I do it all. I want to note, though, uh, in the first podcast that I was on, Divine Invasion, on two occasions, I said the teleported man instead of the unteleported man. All right. I want to demonstrate that I am aware of that. Thank you. <laughs> <clears throat> I think Larry did correct you one of the times. I, he did, but then I said it again. <laughs> I just finished reading one of your books that is coming ah, out next month. What book is that? That is called Nietzsche, the Unmanned Autohagiography. And uh, it's the fourth installment in my series of fake biographies. The other three are on Hitler, uh, Freud, and Frederick Douglass. Yeah, and I reviewed it on my blog by doing a fake biography of L. Rod Hubbard. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and uh, uh, I appreciate that. Thank you. Um, so I'm David Agardoff. Don't know me. I'm the. Uh, I've been here since the beginning, but I have a book coming out next month as well, and that is the Last Night to Kill Nazis. Um, on that note, for the longest, most serious introduction of all, Mister Langhorn J. T. Tweed. Who are you and what do you do? Uh, I'm I'm uh, I'm Langhorn J. Tweed. I like this. Uh, new... I do this. Yes. I like your new backdrop. Is that uh... our poster? Yeah, that's, that's poster. the poster of our painting. So yeah. where does that, where uh, where does that come from? Incidentally, did, did who who illustrated that? Mike Dubish. Mike Dubish. Uh, yeah. Great, the... great artist. Specifically yeah. for the podcast. Yeah. 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 Oh. It's a. Anthony uh, paid him, signed it or whatever. Yeah, requested. paid him money for paid it. Him real, real live money for it. You know what? Where does is that the original? This is not the original. This is the poster that you can get through Patreon. 
I would yeah. love a link to that, if you please. Yeah. Yes, that is that is that is beautiful. Yes, Mike Dubish, who did the uh, Mystery Meat comic with Cody Goodfellow. Um, so uh, very good artist. He's done a lot of cover art too for various Bizarro yeah. and science fiction books. He, he, but, okay. Great artist. If you look Mike him up, Dubish, right away on Google, you'll see a bunch of pieces by him that are pretty incredible. Yeah, and he is an actual dickhead. Like he likes Philip K. Dick, so he was. The Say the name artist. one more time, please. Mike, Mike Dubish. Dubish. Got it. Dubish. Yeah. On that fun note, that's all of us, um, and um, we are very excited to do to get to this episode. But first, we need to do a little one piece of PKD news, which is show related, somewhat too. The number two item, if you search Philip K. Dick news on Google right now, is friend of the podcast, David Gill's salon article on uh, chat GPT and how uh, uh, Phil predicted it in the uh, penultimate truth and uh, the big noodle in Divine Invasion. So um, we're super proud and happy for... Uh, our pal David Gill for um, making the number two spot on the Google search for Philip K. Dick with this article. It's a really great article. Um, Larry, have you read it? I have not. I'm... I knew you hadn't. So you should go read it. <laughs> I read it. I was going to have to find it anyway and put it in the show notes. So right. I will read it. Yeah, no, it's a great article. Um, and we're really stoked for Gill that, that he had that going on. Yeah, so uh, we're ready to talk about the year 1982. Wow. Um, David, what was happening in 1982? You know, it's funny you should ask because you've asked 47 times before about (laughs) different years. But this year is one that you and I, all three of us, remember very well. But... Some of our listeners out there may not have even been born in 1982. So let's talk about what was going on when the transmigration of Timothy Archer was unleashed into the world. This is the same year that Ozzy accidentally ate a bat that he didn't think was real. (laughs) Um, This is when Michael Jackson's Thriller album came out. That's a big deal. Who here had parachute pants? Yeah. Not me. You had. I didn't have parachutes. Who pants. here was a break dancer in 1980? I was not coordinated. <laughs> a in bad that, one. Yeah, I Bandana tried. Bandana tied around my thigh. I had it all going on. <laughs> yeah. Um, the breakup of the AT and T monopoly was a big deal in 1982. That was a big. Uh, AT and T was told that they couldn't be all one company. Argentina invades the Falkland Islands was a was a big news story. Um, the premiere of the first episode of Late Night with David Letterman happened that year. And of course, in the summer, we had E.T., The Thing, and Blade Runner being released on the same day, which is crazy. And I mean, this is widely considered the best year in science fiction. So. Yeah, 87. Yeah. Science fiction uh, but one terrible thing happened for science fiction in 1982, and of course, this is one of the biggest news events for this here podcast, which is that Phil died, and he died in March before this book came out. So um, he did not get to see the release 
of the transmigration of Timothy Archer. What did he die of? He died of a brain aneurysm or something? He had a stroke, and sure. he was in a hospital for a couple days and held on for a little bit. Um, I th- Do we have any, like, Dutch Schultz sort of, you know, deathbed confessions from him or anything? <laughs> no. Was he, was um, he lucid? He was not. Um, Here, look. For YouTube viewers, there's a picture of him on his deathbed. Yeah. Um, I'll explain he, what this is later. <laughs> he got a lot of visits. Um, uh, Doris came back. Um, I believe Anne came to see him. Um, so a couple of, of I mean, the it would, wives. It would be like a procession, I would think. Of just yeah, a bunch, a bunch of the writers came in and... Um, there was a couple days between when the stroke happened and when, like, you know, he was pronounced dead. So um, it, there was, uh, I, you know, it was uh, uh, all, you know, the daughters came, like, and I believe Laura was overseas, his daughter. I'd have to look back into that. That's in um, Ann Dick's book. But I think she was overseas studying and um, may have flown back. Um, and how old was he? He was like 53 when he died. So, right, um, right, right there in my future. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, you know, he did. I think the drugs got him in the end, right? Yeah, but I've done a lot of drugs. <laughs> you think you've done? You think you've done as many as PKD? Really? Yeah. For as that many years? I uh, I spread it out more. Oh, okay. Well, good. So, I'm probably fine. <laughs> well, you you recall the list of people who were killed by drugs that Phil put himself on that list while he was still alive. Um, sure. Yeah, I mean he 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 knew he had done damage to himself. Yeah, but he uh, also didn't understand what the drugs were, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna hold that against him. Yeah, um, but yeah, so I mean this was a this was a you know a big deal. The book. He died in March. The book came out in the summer or um, released in April 82. So like literally a month after he died. Um, So it's, uh, you know, he knew that this was coming out. He was very proud of this book in many ways. And we'll we'll get to that Um, because this was the quickest completed to out um, non-science fiction book he had. You know, like this felt like literary mainstream success to him, which is funny because it was published by a science fiction publisher Ooh, and a science fiction. That's editor. unfortunate. Yeah. And the same editor, um, David Hartwell, who did Divine Invasion. We, you know, what's was funny was I was editing the last episode and I'm also looking for this science fiction anthology that has a. Uh, that has a specific story about a rock creature that's young climbing out of the mountain that it lives in and a hard sci-fi. And it was so many of those anthologies are Hartwell. Yeah, no, he was a huge name in science fiction, huge. And he worked at Tor until he died, I believe, or retired. Um, yeah, like I know there's a big difference between death and retirement. The anthologies, but... the science fiction anthologies are from Hartwell. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. He's a huge deal. And he um, did edit this book. And um, 
you know, we we all have some quotes from some of his his friends as well as as Phil when we get it, it, into it. But um, I think, you know, one of the things I think this was a crowning achievement for him to to have. And and personally, I think it's good that he knew that this book was going to be published, you know, before he died, because it was like a sense of accomplishment for him. Um. Now let's. Uh, so I suppose at this point we can get into the writing and publication history. This was written in April and May 1981, so it was written in two months, which is a pretty good clip for Phil. But we know that even um, later in his life, that when he got to writing, he he, you know, he just kind of knuckled down and like tried to do it as quickly as he could. Um, this is the only Philip K. Dick novel in first person. Uh, which is interesting. Um, it is a, one, huh? yeah. Really? Is and, it? Isn't it the only one? Also, that's it's a it's a woman too. Yes, yeah. Angel yeah. Archer yeah. is his only female protagonist, yep. like main character. Um, it was funny because uh, I hung out with uh, uh, a a whole crew of dickheads last night, and just last night we had a whole argument over the who Phil based angel archer on and we'll get to that in a little bit because he as phil is wont to do he had multiple answers including saying there was no one that it was based off thank of. you but, thank you yeah yeah just to have a goddamn character in a book for christ's sake <laughs> But those of us who read his outlines know that he does often list three characters that he three real life people that he bases his characters off of. And yes, there is no possible way, Larry, that we are going to talk about this book without me getting shocked for the autobiographical button a thousand times because this one is totally ripped from his life. It's not about him, but it's about people he knew and experiences he was around. So, yeah, I know, but that's just the way it is um, with this one. Um, Wait, which one was it? <laughs> well, no, I'm saying <laughs> Timothy Archer. The, Timothy Archer, the character, is obviously based on Bishop James A. Pike, who was a famous figure that Phil knew. And we will get into the details that because... If he were to even claim that this wasn't based on Pike's life, he, I mean, that so many of the facts are just like straight up out of his life. Now, there's contradictions on how his life. That's not, that, but that's not my argument. You know that, right? Yeah, yeah, I know. I know. My argument is that who fucking cares? I know. That is your argument. But Harry doesn't like you getting excited about autobiographical principles. Yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I know that. I'd rather you be excited about books. I mean, that's just my thing. Well, yeah, but this is this is where the grump factor comes in. You just have to be, be extra grumpy about it because you're just going to fucking deal with it because there is so much about. I'm entertained by it. OK, well, that's good. All right. So, uh, Professor Wilson, do you have the notes. Up? I do. Uh, <laughs> uh, you want to do the first quote from Norman Spinrad? Yeah. Uh, tell us what Spinney said. All right. Quote. Phil had come to know Pike and wanted to write a novel about Pike's spiritual odyssey. Somehow, perhaps because he felt he was irrevocably tight as an SF writer, Phil had gotten it into his head that the only way he could get such a novel published was to 
tart it up with a lot of thriller come SF paraphernalia involving CIA plots, alien invasions, and the usual razzmatazz. Geez, Phil, I told him, you've got a great story here. You don't need all that crap. Why don't you just tell it straight? You think I could get it published, he asked. I told him I thought he could, and he decided to discuss the matter with Russell Galen, his agent and friend whom he really trusted. Galen curd, encouraged Phil to go ahead, and the result was the transmigration of Timothy Archer, which I believe is one of Phil's three or four best novels, and a return to the level of The Man in the High Castle, The Three Stigmata of Balmer Eldritch and Ubik, after too many years of floundering around with lesser works. Certainly, it's far superior to Vallis or The Divine Invasion, utterly coherent, totally controlled, spiritually used, lucid, and filled with loving clarity. Um, there's a lot to unpack there, but uh, I think Spinney, uh, as Phil called him, it's interesting that he says that he's returning to the level of those books. So he's clearly throwing shade on Vallis and Divine Invasion, right? Um but and definitely among the science fiction authors who tend to be more conservative in their purview of how books should look. Hmm. Yeah. Um, and it's interesting because, uh, well, you know, um, what, what's what Spinrad's saying here too is that I like what he said that you know you don't need all that razzmatazz. It's interesting to think about how there's a, a there's another version of this novel that had alien invasion and had all the razzmatazz. And then my question is, do you guys think that would be a better or more interesting novel than this one? I mean, not, not for me. I mean, yeah. uh, this this novel hits my wheelhouse. So, yeah, other I don't than, think it, I, other I think, than the last 30 pages, which is trash. But <laughs> so is this among uh, Larry? Is this among one of your favorites? Yeah. It is. Yeah. All right. Well, spoiler alert for the uh, when we talk about our final thoughts. But um, well, yeah, it's interesting because I think if he had done all the razzmatazz, as um, Spinrad put it, uh, I think it wouldn't have been so different of a novel. I think one of the things that makes it like a stronger novel is that it does that it's not like the rest of his oeuvre, you know, it's told it, straight. Yeah. It's told straight, yeah, and um, and that's one of the things that I I think makes it a little different. It's uh, let's talk about him saying that it's utterly coherent, totally controlled, spiritually lucid, and filled with loving clarity. Um, I don't know. I think comparative. I think you take out those last thirty-five pages, and yes. So what I would say is utterly more coherent than most of his work more totally controlled than most of his work um spiritually lucid i i could go with that with other 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 ones and i would say there's loving clarity compared to some but i i wouldn't say that it's completely all those things i just think comparatively right yeah, right? yeah. Well, which is fine yeah, probably you know um this is my first, by the way, this is my first time reading Timothy Archer. I had not read this. This is my, my second time reading. Okay. Um, this is. But that's it. I haven't read anything else. <laughs> yeah. Wait a sec. David, you've never read this novel before? Never read this one before reading oh. the podcast. Oh, But okay. you, you read it before. This is your second time, right? It is. Yeah. Years ago yeah. I read it. <clears throat> yeah. When did you read it? 
Because I, I read it in 93 or something. Yeah, I was mine was mid to late 90s. Yep. Yeah. Now, did it feel like a totally different experience to you reading it now? It did. I was kind of bored. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I grappled onto these words like utterly coherent and totally controlled. Uh, I, you know, this... I was bored because what I like, in uh, as we've talked about in, in Dick's work, is the opposite of that. I like the incoherence. I like the lack of control. Yeah, the, the frenetic sort of like yeah, yeah, is coming in from everywhere and a jumble. Yeah. Yep. Um, Phil turned uh, down a lot of money uh, in order to write this book because he was offered a gig to write a novelization of Blade Runner. Um, but we've and- talked about that. Yeah, we've talked Watch about our Blade Runner slash do androids. Episode. Yeah, I'm not going to go deeply into that. Just the idea that. That's mentioned that, in the next quote. Yeah. So why don't you read that quote then? You bet. Quote. And this is from Phil. Now the payment on that novel is very small. It's only 7500 which is just about minimum these days. It's because in the mainstream field, I am essentially a novice writer. I'm not known, and I'm being paid on the scale that a new writer coming into the field would be paid on. The contract is a two-book contract, and there's a science fiction novel in it. And it pays exactly three times for the science fiction what is being paid for Timothy Archer. Simon & Schuster wanted Archer first, and I wanted to do it first. Of course, I may find that I made a very great error because it may not turn out to be a successful book. It may be that I've lost the ability to write a literary novel, if indeed I ever had the ability to do so. It's been over 20 years since I've written a non-science fiction novel, and it's very problematical when I can write mainstream literary quality type fiction. This is definitely an unproven thing, an X factor. I may find that I've turned down $400,000 and wound up with nothing. What the hell happened there? Give me a break. He didn't turn down four hundred grand for $7,500. I don't give a shit what was going on. He um, there's some there's some vast amount of money that he he did. Yeah, there's a vast amount of money he was offered for the Blade Runner thing, but he honestly like he thought it was impossible for him to write that. He thought there was no way he could sit down and write that and turn in something good, and he was def I think he was afraid to try. Would he have been I paid think, regardless? Well, he got paid for like so that's why he fought so hard to get the edition that had the Blade Runner poster on it of Do Android's Dream because he, you know, in his heart of hearts, he didn't believe he had it in him to write the novelization. Yeah. Yeah. Because he mm-hmm. thought he just like, I mean, if you look at Divine Invasion, he's probably not wrong because Divine Invasion might as well have been a 60s science fiction novel. Right. And they wanted a modern like they yeah, were like, like, hey, like a William with... Gibson book or something like that. No, yeah, you're not going to get that from PKD. And there was talk that they wanted they they went to Russ Galen and said, um, well, we can hire a hotshot young science fiction writer or even John one of your Foster. friends, Phil, and they can do the novelization. And, you know, he didn't want that because he wanted it to affect his sales. So he made the right choice for him to uh, make sure that Do Android's Dream was the one with the Blade Runner cover. But he got paid significantly less because it was a reprint and not a new novel. So I'm still suspicious of that because his whole, I mean, his whole life, 
struggled with money, right? I mean, was, he, was, he, was he that protective of his legacy, maybe? <laughs> I, I don't know. Well, here's the thing. Good argument. <laughs> in the, keep in mind that in that those couple years before that is when he first started to feel financial freedom. He was Bill. starting to yeah, have that's enough. True. Because he was doing things like buying Laura a car, he was like he he had money, and so he had enough to. But what live what on. does that mean though? When, when like for instance, J.G. Ballard, when he died, he had ten million in the bank. What what's money to Philip K. Dick? It ain't ten million, right? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I don't know. I, I, I have no idea what he considered like, you know, well off or or, you know, decently, decently took, taken care of. You yeah. Know. Yeah, I'd be that's a good question. Also, not, not sure. Um, but yeah, that's I mean, we went into that a lot on the episode about Blade Runner. Um, the movie episode, not the not the book episode, not the do androids dream episode. <laughs> yeah. Um, all right. So PKD said Timothy Archer is essentially the third novel in a trilogy of which Valis is the first and the Divine Vision is the second, which is sort of interesting because each book is unique really was necessary for me to do the novel as a projection of thematic material going back years and years and years in my writing and stuff even as early as Eye in the Sky and Time Out of Joint. Those themes are constant preoccupations with me. They unfold by their own inner organic drive. And I don't really have the option of aborting that process and just suddenly going into a completely commercialized thing aimed at 12-year-old. <laughs> so, David... This brings up a question. And now you're you're still of the opinion that this is not a trilogy. Oh, me? Not real. Not a real trilogy. It's a marketing trilogy. So I I, I don't it, know. That was a PKD quote saying it's a trilogy. I know, but I think it's a marketing <laughs> quote. If anything, well, if anything, Radio Free Albumuth is more of part of Vallis than Well, this I mean, is. well... We'll find that out. I haven't read it yet, so I can't I can't make a judgment on that. But I well, mean, I mean, that was thematically, first... thematically, the the religious drive in each of these books does make them a trilogy. Sure. Um, I yeah, it's a loose trilogy. I don't know that. I think that all three books kind of stand on their own to a certain degree. I think Divine Invasion benefits. God, from... any trilogy should be like that. We should yeah. hope. <laughs> well. Divine, I think Divine Invasion can live without Valis, but is better if you've read Valis. Whereas I don't think you need to read either of the other two to enjoy Transmigration of Timothy Archer. Or I don't it. think you have to even read any other PKD novel to enjoy Transmigration. So, yeah. Um, and as a matter of fact, I'm sure there are people who are really interested in Bishop Pike and maybe read on Wikipedia that. Phil based this on his life. And if you're interested in Bishop Pike, you could come to this and just read it for that reason. You know, that's why uh, I'm sort of, I'm sort of looking at this as a, a we we are now looking at a new crowd coming into this novel because this novel is so different from his other stuff. And I know we'll, we'll talk about it in the future, but it's, yeah. it's just that, you know, this is not going to be your general sci-fi crowd. This is going to be your, I, I guess more literary sort of crowd looking at this. I think we, go ahead. One thing I thought when I was reading it, and we can get back to this later, is I'm very curious as to what, uh, um, not that it's not a, a 
competent and capable book. There are lots of great things going on in there, but I'm interested in what in specifically you like, because I wonder <clears throat> if it would have had the success or whatever we want to call it, the aura that it has, if it was, say, Philip K. Dick's first book, or if it wasn't connected to his oeuvre, you know, in and of itself, I find it difficult to remove that Phil Dickian mystique from any of his work. So when I'm reading it, I found myself thinking, gee, I, I enjoy this to some degree because it's written by Philip K. Dick. I don't know if I would if it wasn't. Now, we can't, you know, I can't disentangle myself. Whereas I'm the exact opposite. I had those same, same thoughts. Mm -hmm. When I removed PKD from the equation, I enjoyed it even more. Really? Yeah. Okay, good. We're on the opposite ends. That's uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm with Big D here that. because uh, uh, I I don't think I would have probably enjoyed this if I did. No, you would have hated this. <laughs> like I don't know if you liked it or not, but you would have absolutely hated this if it didn't have that PKD connection. You're probably right. I don't know <laughs> if I would have hated it, but I probably. Oh would've... no, you would have despised this. I would. I wouldn't have finished it probably. Um, <laughs> no, you wouldn't. <laughs> But the fact that it is autobiographical and because it's a guy whose life and work we study, like um, it does, you know, create all kinds of fascinating aspects for me. But, you know, without that, you know, but at the same time, that's a part of it. You can't divorce that from this book. And so we can hypothetically look at it and say, like, I wonder if I were to like, well, but that's what this book is. It's like. I don't know. It's like saying, like, I don't know if I'd like Star Wars if the Force wasn't involved, right? You know, no, like it's not like that at all. That's, that's, a, that's not, not your best, not your best comparison. But okay, I don't know. A better one. Star Trek without space. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> it took place in an office building. So we talked about the fact that it's first person and it's. Um, um, Angel Archer, and this is really funny because we had this argument last night uh, when a bunch of us dickheads were hanging out because I think it was Keith Giles who's coming up on the show here soon, probably already out before you listen to this one, so you can go back and hear that More interview. Yeah. But Keith was saying like, uh, oh, well, he based Angel Archer partially off Ursula Le Guin. No, that is not the case. The inspiration from Le Guin was to do a female character because she called him out for not having female characters. It's not that he based the character off Ursula Le Guin. Let's be clear. It's uh. that she said, you do not have enough female characters. You do not represent fe women at all. They're, they're, you no, don't know how to write women. He's a misogynist. <laughs> it's, yeah. It's obvious. Right. And so... He was challenged by Le Guin like that was one of the he wanted to and he was so proud of himself that there's one point where he wrote a letter to her saying like, and I don't know what he was thinking, but he was basically like, you're going to love this novel because there's a woman at the center of it. And I don't know if she liked transmigration or, or not. I don't think she's ever commented on it, but that's interesting. Yeah. And there, we have a quote about because it. They, they are women, but they're not. I mean, there's a woman at the center, but she's not exactly the womanist woman on the planet. No, and and I just I I, I heard Phil's voice. I mean, Jesus, she's uh she works in the record store. <laughs> I mean, that's fair. Right? Yeah. 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 Uh, you want that Le Guin quote? Yeah. Uh, this is Phil talking to Le Guin, I believe. In a letter. In yes. a letter. Okay. This is the happiest moment of my life, Ursula, to meet face to face this bright, scrappy, witty, educated, tender woman. 
Hmm. What's he trying to do there? <laughs> uh, had it not been for your analysis of my writing, I probably never would have discovered her. Now, I, I, I pause there because it sounds like Phil's hitting on her, as he uh, tends to do. Is he, <laughs> is he referring to the character? There? <laughs> yeah. Does he have any female relationships that aren't based on some kind of sexual attraction? I, I, I don't think so. <laughs> not that I'm aware of. <laughs> well, one of the ones that was very important uh, that was not a sexual thing was his daughter, Laura, um, who... Jesus. Well, <laughs> well, yes, that's what I'm saying. Was that another segue? <laughs> <laughs> that was the worst segue ever. Um, so, Anne Dick, his wife, the mother of Laura, suggested that many times... that. He, Phil said to her in private conversation that Laura was the inspiration for Angel Archer. However, we are going based on her saying that, where at the same time, Phil has many times said that Angel was just a creation. And part I mean, of the, like, You can see Phil saying that, right? Like, Yeah, you can see him saying that to, to Anne, but at the same time... Just to Anne in some way, maybe, like... No, this is about our daughter, so it's it's cool, or something yeah. like, you know, like he yeah. would have. And then at the same time, in in um, the final interview that he gave, in the final interview that he gave, in this that's published in this book, "What if our world is their heaven?" and I'll have quotes from that. He talks a lot about Timothy Archer in this because that was the just completed book, and in this one, he very specifically says. There is no one woman who inspired Angel Archer, but he also talks about how much he missed her when he finished writing the book. And he talked about her like, you know, she's he specifically talked about how she was smarter than him and that, uh, you know, he missed being around her when he was writing the book. So, yeah. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's a thing. I'm sure we've, we've all done that with characters. Right. Oh, yeah. All right. So here are the theme. Uh, oh, wait. You know what time it is. What? Bathroom? We're done with the, the writing. Public yeah. <laughs> uh, it's time for the. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. I, I almost don't want to. I almost don't want to know how you're going to break this down. Pretty sure. Pretty sure this is the easiest one. That we've ever had. All right. Uh, story breakdown. Yeah. Mr. Mr. Tweeter. All right. Let's uh, start Tweet this it. story. What? Get tweeting. So, hold on. Hold on. Uh, Let's start this story where it should start, where every, short, every story should start, in Sausalito, my favorite place where I hope to retire someday if I ever get to retire. For reals. And um, let's see, Sausalito, where our protagonist, one Angel Archer, is uh, attending a seminar by a guru by the name of, is he in there? Edgar Barefoot, who's a big fat guy. Based on uh, Alan Watts, I'm told. Huh. So uh, this uh, Alan Watts stand-in named uh, Edgar Barefoot. And she seems to be a sad person because all the people in her, her life have died in one way or another. We go back in time to her and her husband meeting their 
uh, dad or her father-in-law, his dad, at a restaurant where her friend is trying to convince him to do a speech for a, a feminist group. He gladly agrees. Then he ends up banging that woman. Um, so that's how that started. So he bangs the woman. Then they're like, oh, my God, we're friends. And everybody's getting along. And look, at, isn't this great that you get to bang? And no, it's not great. Because apparently Angel doesn't like that shit. She is against it in a big way. Uh, if you had liked Angel up to this point, you're not going to like her anymore because she has a total freak out where she basically calls everyone in the world stupid other than her and uh, says, if I smoke, if I stoke a little weed, uh, maybe I can tolerate all of you fucking losers. Uh, so, yeah, she's she's great. It's just great. It's just great. Scene. She berates her husband, hoping that he'll punch her in the throat or something. And he's not he's not buying into it. And but he has some weird stuff to say about jealousy. Anyway, so we get past that. We're we're back onto the uh the straight and narrow where Timothy Archer, who is the father in more ways than one, uh Jeff, who is his son, it's a, it's Kirsten, right? Kirsten. Yes, Kirsten. Sorry, it says Kristen here on the on the thing, so I, I got confused for a second. Uh, Kirsten, who is the uh, feminist woman who is now the lover mistress of Bishop Timothy Archer. Those are our main characters in the whole thing. There's also another guy, Bill, who factors in quite a bit, but we'll get to that. We got a little bit, a little bit of talking to do about Bill. Um, so where were we? Oh, yeah. So she goes to... Archer's office in the, the Archdiocese Church Cathedral of Heaven, whatever it is in San Francisco, and says, you got to stop banging my friend because it's bad for you. And he says, basically, no, I'm going to keep doing that because I'm, I'm a human and I need to bang. And so, yeah, well, you are a human and you need to bang and she should know that. But that's beside the point. And then her husband gets the hots for the mistress woman and shit gets really weird for a while uh but then they have to go to england because there's these scrolls or something or other some writings that are being translated that prove that jesus was just this uh this dude that wasn't wasn't really the son of god but he was carrying the message of god which was basically do mushrooms that was what God said we should do is just do some mushrooms and, and be happy. So the, the Eucharist, which I was denied once, which was awesome. <laughs> uh, <laughs> denied in a very, very personal sense where the, the priest went, nope, and then moved on to the next person. It was, all, it was at a wedding. I think he was told to not get anywhere near me. He might burn. So... Uh, anyway, so uh, interesting get, factoid. <laughs> interesting factoid there. What's the name? So they, of, uh, in, what's the name of the mushroom? Is it is it a noki? A noki? Is that how you pronounce it? That's how I'm pronouncing it. Yeah. Uh, okay. I'll go with. I that. mean, a noki would be also a good pronunciation, I yeah. think. Uh, but so in England, Jeff comes to visit, and uh, there's something that happens. We're not told. 
But I think Jeff confessed his love for Kirsten, and she basically said, yeah, get away from me, boy. Because, I mean, she's not quite a human being. She's sort of a demon unto herself, a, 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 a very bipolar demon at that. But we're told that that's because she does a lot of drugs. So, barbiturates, to be exact. And that it's not truly her fault that she's this laugh, cry, yell uh, monster. So Jeff comes back home, leaves his wife, who is our protagonist, and goes and lives in a hotel until he shoots himself in the head. Boom, first death. All right. So at that point, Archer, Tim oh, there's so many Archers. Uh, Timothy Archer and <clears throat> Kirsten believe that Jeff comes back. And he's then a ghost that's haunting them. And that now they have, they, they've gotten through their guilt because of his ghost being there. This is, of course, dumb. But Angel, who is always the person with the sarcasm and the, uh, and the, the pithy statements, uh, decides to go along with it because she has to admit to herself that being the friend of a famous person is more important than honesty to her. And what a great lesson that is. One we've seen play out so many times in the public sphere is just famous people getting away with stupid stuff or not getting away with stupid stuff because no one was there to say, hey, you're being an asshole. Uh, so, and it, we're, we're told the reason why is because you don't want to lose that connection to that fame. Anyway, so that happens. Then they go. He decides to write a book about his son coming back, which is the probably the dumbest thing a, a bishop could do, is write about the the uh, supernatural. So he knows he's being stupid. So they go down to Santa Barbara. They meet with a psychic who tells them that Timothy is going to die. Kirsten's going to die. Angel, you're all right. Uh, so, great, great. So, Kirsten does die. She ODs, so basically another suicide. Archer leaves the diocese, goes and becomes a consultant for a think tank. But the, oh man, and I wish I could remember the terminology that Dick used for the, the sort of like, um, the thought that, that, that ruin that all, becomes all encompassing. I can't remember the name of that, but the the thought that becomes I don't all remember in, either. Uh, and and consumes a person and makes that that brain die, which is a super fantastic sort of metaphor for having that thought that can't leave your head. Um, uh, but he is all consumed by this connection between the Anoki and the. Um, and the Eucharist and Jesus Christ and how this is the, the the this is the answer to all of his life's problems is to find this mushroom, and if he consumes that mushroom, then he will truly understand God, and and find peace within himself. So he decides to go to Israel. There's other stuff that happens, but it's not important. You know, it's not important. It's basically thinking about stuff and 
talking about stuff and our feelings and this and that. So then he's like, I got to go to Israel. You come with me, not as my lover, because that's Grody, but as my secretary, because I need that secretary. And she says no, because, and man, this is another moment of, of pure life uh, getting in the way of, of beautiful story. But uh, she says no, because I'm afraid, because then I'd have to give up all the security I have in my current life. And so she decides not to go to Israel with him. He goes to Israel by himself, dies, and then the book ends. What a great book it was. That was amazing. Just incredible. She ends with like, am I a robot? Am I a person? You know, is this is this all there is to life is just functioning now? that all this excitement in my life is gone because it's all dead. Oh, what a relief. Then he goes on to talk about some weird shit about fucking Timothy Archer coming back in the head of the crazy kid that she thought she, she said she would never see again on page 100 or 103 of my edition. Uh, she said, I never saw Bill again. And that was the end of that character until she saw him again on page 118 and then again and then again and then again. And so we get this whole coda thing where it's like, oh, uh, Timothy Archer is back inside the head of the the hebephrenic, you know, and he's he's alive again, but he's not alive again. It's just another part of his psychosis. And then the, this great doctor. I, I wrote his name down specifically because he is my favorite character in the whole book. Uh, Dr. Greeby in the Mental Institute says everything I wanted to say to Angel the whole book, that you are just a Berkeley intellectual. I've seen a million of you. You're a nothing person. You need to leave this kid alone because you're trash. Get out. <laughs> Which was amazing. And, and that's the only part of the coda that I actually enjoyed. Uh, oh, see, I'm gonna, we're going to end up arguing about the coda a lot. Then she's like, oh, yeah, I'll show you. I'll ruin that kid's life despite what you say. And uh, then it basically, that's, that's about the end. There it is. Oh, well, there we go. <laughs> the transmigration of Timothy Archer. Okay, so for folks playing along at home, these are the themes as I broke them down, uh, characters. Um, That's a theme. Yeah. Real life events. <laughs> hearsay in religion. Randomly, hearsay or heresy? Her heresy. Heresy. Okay. Heresy. Uh, what a, Always hearsay. All hearsay. <laughs> Always. Heresy and religion. Uh, random shit I liked. <laughs> Uh, I like random shit I liked. That's my favorite theme of anything. Yeah. So let's start with the character because that's everything. So we already talked about Angel a little bit, so I'm just going to move on to... Hey, let, let me say one thing about Angel, if that's okay. Yeah, yeah go. go. Larry, you mentioned how... Because uh, this is a you know literary mainstream novel that, that Phil was dying to write. Presumably, I think it, at, some, at some point I read he... He said he hadn't written a, or aspired to write a mainstream book or story for like 20 years, right? Mm -hmm. 
Uh, but at the same time, all, all kinds of science fictional things work its way into the narrative. And you mentioned how uh, uh, later in the book, when, when Angel is, uh, uh, forgot what the context is, but she equates herself with, you know, uh, Dick's beloved androids, essentially. It's on page, uh, real quick, on page... It's, it's actually what I call the, the end of the book. It's page 214. Okay, I, I got it. Yeah, it's at, it's at two thirteen and two fourteen. Two fourteen. And she uses yeah. the word machine, yeah, like ten or twenty times exactly. in reference to herself exactly. in in one paragraph. Yeah, yeah. I thought so that was a beautiful passage. Yeah, that's one of my favorite in the book for sure. Yeah. So there's there's a, my point is there's always sort of a you know one one thing of course distinguishes something as as science fiction is technology right. And in that passage, she sort of technologizes herself and equates it with death. Like yeah. she's dead inside because she she's truly dead. dead. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, I'm fine with if you, if you want to read the passage, too. or if you think Yeah, if you want to read that oh, whole sure. thing, I'm, I'm, I'm down. All right, here yeah. it goes. And I do have a quote about Laura when you're done. Okay. Uh, the soul I lost during that week did not ever return. I am a machine now. Years later, a machine heard the news of John Lennon's death. And a machine grieved and pondered and drove to Sausalito to sit in on Edgar Barefoot's seminar because that is what a machine does. That is a machine's way of greeting the horrible. A machine doesn't know any better. Simply grinds along and maybe whirs. That is all it can do. You cannot expect more than that from a machine, et cetera, et cetera. That repetition is actually a literary technique. Poe used it all the time. I, I use it all the time in my yeah. writing, too. <laughs> and I mean, look at Dick here. He, in the end, he finally like did what he wanted to do, you know? Yeah. Well, yeah, uh, I think that is a great passage. And it really kind of speaks to, um, like, Angel kind of self-reflecting in a, in, in a, in, in a way that um, kind of meets up with that whole idea that she's being told you're just a Berkeley intellectual. She's like kind of self disparaging herself there, which is, which is interesting. Um, and uh, so I'm going to read some quotes from the, uh, the final uh, interview. Um, and this is uh, what if our world is their heaven? Uh, final conversations of Philip K. Dick. And that title is a reference to the book that he would have written next, the owl in the daylight. Yeah, so this is from the final interview that Phil gave a couple months before he died, and um, they're talking about Angel Archer as a character and the novel. Yeah. Timothy Archer. Dick says, yeah, it is. It starts out this way. Quote, Barefoot conducts his seminars on his houseboat in Sausalito. It costs $100 to find out why we are on this earth. You also get a sandwich, but I wasn't hungry that day. John Lennon had just been killed, and I think I know why we are on this earth. It's to find out that what you love the most will be taken away from you, probably due to an error in high places rather than by design, unquote. Okay, now, this is a woman. She's in her 20s. I'm a man, and I'm in my 50s. Okay. She's graduated from the University of California. I did not. I went a month and was thrown out. Uh, she may have even or she may even have a master's degree. It's a little vague, but she, you know, evidently, you know, was a very good student in the English department. I was never in the English department. I majored in philosophy. She's OK. Now, here's the strange part. Now, this is impossible. Now, this cannot be. She's smarter than I am. Now, the whole book is through her viewpoint. This is not just a character. The whole every single thing that happens is seen through her viewpoint. She's smarter than I am. She's more rational than I am. She's more educated than I am. 
and she has a broader vocabulary than I have, and she has. She's acquainted with source material books that she's read that I have not read, and yet everything is through her viewpoint. Sounds like he's uh, really, what a disclaimer that is. It sounds like he really wants it to be true. Yeah. Yeah, he definitely <laughs> wants that to be true. Right. He wants her to be smarter. Um, but I thought that was a really fascinating thing that he just, you know, it was really important to him, this idea that, you know, because he never wrote a first-person novel before, and, of course, never did again, this is the only time that he's done that, and it was really important for him to suggest this idea that that um, Angel was smarter than him. It's it's really interesting. I like how much thought he put into, like, well, she's probably in the English department, maybe, maybe, but he is thinking about it, and I've, I found that interesting. So um, before we move on to the bishop, is there anything else you guys want to say about Angel specifically? Besides her being a bad person? <laughs> well, you find her very judgmental. That's that's your issue. But well, I think she's exactly like me. Oh, I'm okay. a bad person. Yeah. No. And um, so she's exactly Wait, like are me. You, are you trying to tell person. me she's a good person? Well, I'm saying I think Phil thought she was a good person. Phil thought she was great. Well, what, like, what, but what do you think? <laughs> Um, I was kind of indifferent. I just thought she was such a Phil Cipher. I think he thought she was so different from him, but she really wasn't. She wow. I mean, David, David, you don't have an opinion of the character just in in context of PKD. Okay, Wilson's laughing because he knows how hard this is for me. <laughs> well, no, no, she's to, for me. She seems more like a vehicle uh, for Phil to do whatever he wants. I mean, it, Phil is just kind of using her. You know, to uh, that's Phil for me anyway. I see, I hear and see Phil more than her, right? So, yeah, but, but that in the context of the novel, she she's not Phil. Yeah, yeah that's true. true. That's true. <laughs> and you're right. Like when she's talking to that doctor that you mentioned, she's a prick. She's being a prick yeah. on purpose she's, to that doctor. Yeah, right. Yeah, she um, needs to establish every conversation she has. She needs to establish that she is superior to everyone else in the room. Yeah. That is her entire character. And I believe uh, she, when she I talks believe, about her husband's suicide, she accepts no culpability in his death. She's not even part of his death, according to her. You know, yeah. it, it just happened uh, away from her. You know, there, there's no part of her in any part of this story. That's and what it should be her, noted that the, oh, the, the real villain, life. she is the villain of the story. And she is the protagonist of the story. And I, you think uh, uh, Dick was trying to create, like, uh, I mean, it didn't work, but do you think he was trying to be objective with Angel? <laughs> you know? Well, James, it, it should be, be noted yeah. that uh, James Pike Jr., the one that committed suicide, that this was based off of, did not have, I don't believe he had a wife. So, and so this, this well, it, char <laughs> character... I know you don't give a shit if it's like... What does this have to do with the book? Because it's his inspiration. He's telling the story based on, on these events that happen. So you can't divorce it. You have to look yes, at Yes, you what... can divorce it. The book is one thing. Real life is another thing. Oh. Oh, come on. But with Phil what? K. Dick? No. No, he was, he was telling the story as he remembered it. And that's the thing. 
That's why you it's can't. Not divorce. real life. The a novel is not real life. I know this. You know this. I'm saying that Phil had a hard time separating these things. This is and, insanity. Yeah, I'm just saying that he he. It came down to what Spinney said. With we're not gonna, you know, we're not gonna add the razzmatazz. And I think he went as far as to like change very little about the events that happened in Pike's life. The, and the other thing, what, too, what is the exploration there? What is the exploration of of why he he made the protagonist? Uh, Jeff or whatever his name was in real life. What what was the impetus to make that that relationship happen? What what relationship between who? Uh, between Jeff and or James and this imaginary character, an angel. Like why would yeah. he add the? Uh, yeah, that's I think to have another character in there that wouldn't be so obviously Phil. Now now, in, now in a way in a way what you say is correct. Because she wouldn't have culpability in her husband's death if she didn't exist, right? Well, and here's the other like, thing. There would I be think... no blame cast to her, like, because she wasn't, she's not a real person. I think the other thing that Phil was doing is that one of the things that bothered Phil about Bishop Pike was the fact that Pike never took any responsibility for the two suicides of the people around him. And the fact that he, like, even. To the point where we'll get more. Let, let's get into Bishop Pike for a second. No, no, no. We, 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 we we're talking about something. We, we're in a discussion. <laughs> I think there's context here, though, because okay, one, all right, all right. Uh, so one of the contexts here is that Phil's particular relationship with Pike and how it started is relates to one of the things that I think Phil had a little bit of guilt on, and I think. In this situation, and I think it bothered him that Pike, who he respected a lot, did not feel any guilt or shame on, which is his mother-in-law, Marin Hackett, having had an affair with Pike. And the person who introduced them was Phil. So what happened was Marin wanted to have, she was involved in a similar church or a church under his auspice as the bishop. And she wanted to have him come to some fundraiser or something. And Phil so wrote... The, basically what happened in the book. Yeah. And Phil mm -hmm. wrote the letter that introduced them. And then Marin eventually became uh, Pike's mistress. And they had a secret apartment in the Tenderloin District of San Francisco. And this is one of the things now... It's funny because just before this, we came on and we'll probably put links to this and we'll use audio for this. There was a TV show in the late 70s, early 80s that was like the the occult TV show on mainstream. One of them. I mean, there was a yeah. back then. But. It was a show called In Search Of with Leonard Nimoy. And they'd be like, they would do like stories about whatever occult things or ancient aliens. It was ancient aliens before. It was the aliens. ancient aliens of, of that time. Yeah. Basically. Right. And one month before Phil died, they did an entire episode about Pike. And they got a lot of details wrong. If you <laughs> know the actual history of Bishop Pike, including one of them, they said that Marin Hackett, 
committed suicide because Pike turned her down, wasn't interested in a romance with her. Really? Whoa. They got it that wrong, huh? They got it that wrong because wow. not only not only were they in a having an affair, but they had a secret apartment and they were completely dependent on each other. And so it was what's what's in the book. Now, the way they could say we got it right is that she Marin wanted I think Marin wanted Pike to leave his wife and marry her. Well, and, see, that, that is not in the book that he was still married. I mean, uh, according to the book, his wife had died. So, yeah. And that they changed. just an easy out for Dick to tell the story without that complication. Yeah. In real life, he was still married and he had another assistant that he eventually had an affair with after Marin killed herself. And he did divorce the first wife and marry that woman before he died. Hmm. Um, that episode, well, she's the one that died with it, right? In, well, she actually survived. Oh, she survived that. Okay. She survived in the desert, and he didn't. So, because he sent her to go get help, and then she managed to make it back. And she's interviewed in the In Search of. Okay, but all this, all this, to me, begs the question: Would it have benefited the story if PKD had just made himself himself instead of? The angel character. Uh, well, doesn't he kind of do that in Radio Free Album Moose? I, I have I, no idea. I haven't read yeah. it. <laughs> All right. I, well, we, but we, but, we but in, it, what it's one thing that came to my mind when you guys were talking is that uh, uh, I, the image of uh, a PKD hiding behind these characters, specifically in the Archer novel. Now, yeah. what do I mean by hiding behind the characters? I mean, in part, I think he wants us to. Well, again, now I'm getting, I'm falling into uh, um, David's uh, uh, biographical trap. Let me, uh, yeah, I'll try it. I like the idea of him trying to, uh, you know, create authentic characters, but uh, failing to do so. Yeah. Uh, yet at the same time, <laughs> kind of being conscious of the fact that he's failing to do so and sort of gleefully hiding behind them, but not. Yeah. Well, that's that? the quote that I mean, that's a, I think that's adding intent to to what's ultimately what you say is a failure. Right. You know, I, I don't think yes. there's intent behind that. Like, like the failure, the failure is it doesn't have a, a side note of intent behind it. You know, a soupçon. Of intent. Right. It's, <laughs> it's just failure at that point. So, so he's, he's, you know, trying to hide behind these characters, as many authors do. I mean, there's sure. so many authors that have their, you know, their, their analog as their main character in a story. Mm -hmm. But. His he's doing it in a way that that I think hurts the story in, in this novel. So you think it would be it would be uh, more effective if he more uh, 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 visibly, I guess, used himself. Yeah, it was I mean to choose a fictional character that is the wife of someone and then not give that character any life, any anima. Yeah, is is sort of. Uh, is, is a huge failure, I think. Hmm. 
Well, and I actually think it would have been more dramatic if Pike was, uh, or Archer was married like Pike was, um, you know, because that added to it. Because like here he's on trial for heresy, heresy, and he's got. Um, he's having an affair with a woman and has an apartment in the Tenderloin. But I mean, that's a story he just threw aside uh, as well as the heresy case. Well, and part of it is, is that very few people knew about the affair. Phil happened to know about it because it was his mother-in-law. Right. (laughs) And like, you know, so he had some secret knowledge here. And one of the funny things is, is that he was really disturbed by Pike's death. And I, I would be thinking like, I'd be more disturbed by the fact that your mother-in-law committed suicide over an affair with this guy. Like, why would you be so upset that he went and got himself like killed in, in the desert? But, I mean, uh, that to me makes sense is, uh, uh, yeah, but I mean, there's familial ties and then there's, there's sort of a, a tie of, of respect or admiration for someone. And that tie of admiration and respect is sometimes going to be greater than, yeah and familial well part of pike's death being like kind of affecting phil is because it came on the heels of it was it all happened bang bang boom with the mother-in-law's suicide one of his cats died tony boucher died and then that's why 67 he didn't write a novel until galactic popular in november because he was going through like a, a lot of a lot of this stuff like not it was the suicide of the like so Pike didn't die till sixty eight I think until the next year till after he'd written Galactic. What a, what a great uh, like jester response to that is to write Galactic Pot Healer after all that tragedy to write a very funny novel. book. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So do you know to what I mean? Uh, I, I remember reading somewhere that uh, it didn't. Just as Bill Lundberg uh, thinks that Archer is sort of singing through him, uh, d- didn't uh, Phil think that Pike was inside of him or something, or that he could access him? Manifest in him? Uh, I don't know that he says anything about that, but we do have a good quote on page 58 of the of uh, the final conversation. Uh, well, uh... The bishop, for example, is based on an actual bishop that I knew, and I'm not supposed to say who, because then they'll all come in and sue. There's a big disclaimer in the front of the book. It says, warning, this book is utterly fictitious. You know, and none of the people ever existed. And if you think otherwise, uh, you're wrong. But it's based on an actual bishop that I actually knew. And this man was one of the most educated people in the universe, as they say, Latin, Hebrew, Greek. And the Bible backwards and forwards. So he's forever quoting things which I have no access to. Well, now in that case, I simply look them up. I mean, I just simply get out my Bible and get out books on the Bible and stuff like that. And I remembered my actual friend, but with her, there's no model. Her being Angel? Yeah. Yeah. And so here's the funny thing that warning is not in this book. And every damn person knows that he's writing about Pike. And there's no possible way that anyone would ever imagine that he's writing about anybody else. Yeah, but I mean, there there is no lawsuit there either. There's nothing they could do, even if they he says it. That's right. That's and, ridiculous. 
And the hilarious thing is that the, it comes out a couple months after Mr. Spock is on primetime TV telling the whole story. Yeah. You know. And, so wait, that was my question from before. That So that episode, did this novel prompt that episode or was it, uh, uh, did it come out before? They uh, came out around the same time, which would have been. Um, but it was probably just chance, though. It was right? just yeah. chance. It was just wow. chance. And okay. here's the thing. I'm sure if you're Phil watching that episode of In Search Of, there's a couple times where you're sitting on your, your Santa Ana lip couch going, that's bullshit. <laughs> that's bullshit. <laughs> but you're also thinking, wait, they just told the story that I'm going to tell that's coming out in one month. That's kind of great. Like, taking yeah. the wind out of my sails. Or that's really great for promoting the book that people will want to get that story. But because Phil was not as famous as he is now, they don't mention him once in the In Search Of. I think if you were doing an In Search Of now, his thing oh, yeah. plastered all over the thing. Yeah, yeah, it, would, yeah. it would be all about like Phil going to the seance and and like you know doing all that and you know his mother-in-law being the one that he had the affair with. And you definitely, if you did it now, it would Phil would be all over the fucking thing. Yes, so. And this novel, they would probably mention that this novel. A hundred times as yeah. well. Yeah. And so if you did In Search Of Now, you would definitely, um, you would have that uh, involvement. So, um, okay. So let's see if there's anything. Um, so the gas station scene, I think, is really interesting for setting up uh, Bishop Pike because that's the whole thing that shows that he's famous. Um, and I have a feeling that that is a real thing that happened that Phil saw is like, some, you know, that interaction, maybe not necessarily at a gas station, but, you know, I'm sure he saw, um, and having to explain to people, like, well, where do you, what, um, what part of that is the famous part? Um, hold on, I'm pulling up. Uh, to me it just means he, to me, it. It just showed that he was a, a distracted man who didn't have time for tangible objects. Yeah, which is important, but it's also so it yeah, shows that he... objects is redundant, but... Yeah, he's like, the attendant's like, you destroyed my pump, right? And he's like... I did? Yeah, <laughs> but he's like, he, this is a great man. He marched with Martin Luther King. He's the friend of, of Robert okay, Kennedy. The part which, where he gets away with it. Okay, yeah, yeah, and then... Um, you know, this, this just shows that like, um, it's funny because he was famous Fame has its benefits. Well, it's also showing that he was famous in some circles, but some people didn't know him. He wasn't like, it's not like he was Brad Pitt out there where everybody's going to know who he is. Um, I guess that for the era, let's say Steve McQueen, um, <laughs> you know, like they don't, you know, but at the same time, he's he's famous enough that you could be like, Oh, you know, he marched with Martin Luther King and all that. So, which is, you know, just, I thought that was an interesting scene, a really important scene. Um, the here, the heresy trial, uh, um, heresy trial was mentioned as early as page 17, which I was surprised by. Um, yeah, but it's gone by page 45. (laughs) Right. But this is the way where it connects to Vallis the most, the debate over if the Holy Ghost was, in fact, the form of God uh, equal to Yahweh and Christ, surely he would still be with us. And the fact that um, 
it's funny because Pike was, you know, known for being on trial for heresy. But um, what I think is interesting here and what's one of the most interesting things that Phil can do for people who maybe studied Pike or are interested in Pike is that Phil was actually having these conversations with Pike. And one of the things that Bishop Pike in real life, like, was controversial for is this whole thing that, like, I want to go to Israel and prove that God was either real or that Jesus was real or not and all these things. These are interesting things for, like, setting up Phil for the exegesis years. And the thing is, is that imagine if Pike had been around for the exegesis years I'm sure, like, I don't know if he would have been I'm sorry, I, I'm sorry, I have to interrupt. Uh, when did Pike die? I believe 68, but... Oh, um, wow, it was that early. Okay, okay. Yeah. So he was long gone by the time um, of the... The, the exegesis and... Yeah, and the exegesis. And all that stuff. Well, and we got 2,000 pages of the exegesis. I mean, if Pike had been around, maybe there'd be 3,000, you know? <laughs> or maybe there'd be 200. Yeah, maybe it would you know, have been they could have gone the other way. He, he might have been able to get it down to specific thoughts. Would these guys talk on the phone at all? Um, like, like, would, I mean, would like Phil how, call and say, hey, were I got an idea here. Let's talk it out for a couple yeah. hours. Um, they were known for having big, long conversations. I'll pull out uh, Sutton's book. I know um, it's one... F- 49.50, I think, is the whole interaction between them. But, um, yeah, so, I mean, they were involved enough that, like, Pike invited him and Nancy to join him and Marin at the seance, right? Right. And, which was funny because Phil, like, thought it was, thought, thought that was silly, right? And didn't <laughs> believe in... As does Angel. Right. And um, so... And then, uh, so I, you know, I think they were friends enough that, you know, he invited them to that thing and he thanks Phil and Nancy in the, um, uh, afterward or the forward for his book about the other side, my experiences with psychic phenomenon by Bishop James A. Pike. And in the forward, it mentions Phil says, I'm nevertheless grateful to all um who have shared of themselves especially my good friends mr and mrs phil dick um and you know in the and in the body of the book he talks a lot about the suicide so that might that would actually be an interesting book to read um i didn't have the gumption to read it i thought about it at this time for this one but i was like i don't know i don't I know if that- i can I asked that question originally just because I can imagine uh, Phil and, you know, instead of, say, writing the exegesis with such uh, uh, vitality, let's say, spending a lot of that time talking to, uh, um, you know, Pike and trying, I mean, because essentially he was working things out in that exegesis but at the same time he was talking to doris about this stuff every night over dinner if if he if he had someone else to bounce those ideas off of we might not have ever gotten the exegesis but but, but don't you think too though he was very much aware of it but being and becoming always in a state of becoming uh, a literary artifact in his oof you know i mean I, i don't think he lost sight of that 
I, I do think he was having those conversations with Doris every night over dinner. They would get Chinese food and talk about, you know, she was studying for the priesthood and coming home every day and she was having those kinds of discussions with him. And that's one of the reasons why I think it was so hard for him when she moved out, which is, of course, inspired divine invasion. And that was partially just, you know, and how many times did he ask her to move in? I mean, like he, Doris was uh, essential for like the exegesis years, but one one of these things, uh, one thing in this book actually cleared something up about Doris. Uh, I believe she was a deacon, right, hmm. at her church, at the beginning about you know whether a women should be called deaconess or deacon, and he's he's vying for everyone being called deacon, equal rights, yeah. et cetera, et cetera. Well, it was contra- It was weird that she was studying for the priesthood in that era. You know, it was like an un- an uncommon thing. But like, she was a very serious religious scholar in her own right. Um, and uh, you know, one of the reasons, it, yeah. And so I think she she had a lot to do with a lot of his ideas in this era. So um, let's see. Uh, I know. Uh, Judging from some things that go on in the book, um, uh, I was interested in page uh, 131 of the um, Mariner edition. Um, This, I have no faith in the reality of Christ, he informed us. This is Timothy Archer talking. None whatsoever. I cannot in good conscience go on preaching the Cura Gama of the New Testament. I think that's how you say it. Every time I get up in front of my congregation, I feel like I am deceiving them. If you watch the In Search of, this is straight out of his final, um, you know, this scene. There's a recording of it that he really? got up and spoke to the uh, to the church and gave his final like speech. So and, to his congregation, yeah. And uh-huh. so this this scene, they have a excerpt of the recording of it. Um, on the in search of, I don't know if it's an actor. I think it's, I think it's his real voice. Um, but, uh, you know, and it's kind of funny, like, you know, it was a pretty big deal that Pike got up there and was like, I feel like I'm deceiving all of you and I got to step away. And, but he still can, you know, obviously wanted to prove all this stuff and enough so that he went out in the desert with a Coke and, <laughs> and not much else. Yeah. Good planning. I think we'll be okay with this Coke. Uh, that know. passage you read in the novel, um, doesn't that occur? His doubt sort of creeps in like a goddamn anvil, right? Falling, because in the chapter before, if I'm not mistaken, he's like, I have complete confidence in Jesus Christ, yeah. God, and everything. Yeah. And then he totally turns on a dime. He's like, fuck it. It, 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 it. Nothing's true. Yeah. So the, uh, the thought, just to, an aside, is the, uh, uh, the thought type is called an overvalent thought. Hmm. Oh, the, okay. The thought that takes over a brain and basically destroys it. Is that a clinical term? Overvalent thought? I, I didn't look it up. I, I use the word valence periodically. Yeah. yeah and, uh, I think this is what is this uh, Latin or something? ID fix. Yeah, yeah, idea. Yeah, I mean, valent meant you know to have a certain meaning. So if something's yeah. overvalent, it's too much. Yeah, right. Yeah. So that that was what he used to 
for that like that uh jeff as a ghost thought yeah um which is a really interesting way of doing it and it's one of the more uh cool ideas that got presented here in this here book in uh phil style um, page 173 of the Mariner edition, there's a really interesting part as far as revealing Pike's character. Um, and I had, ex- this is after Kirsten's suicide. I had expected to find him red eyed and distraught. However, to my surprise, Tim looked stronger, more powerfully put together, even in a little literal sense, larger than I had ever seen him before. And then he destroyed her suicide note, right? And then later on the page it says, what did the note say? The part I destroyed? Ah, I don't remember. It's gone. It had to do with us, her feelings about me. I had no choice. As to it being suicide, there's no doubt. And the motive, of course, is her fear that she had cancer again and they're aware that she was a barbiturate addict. Um, so this is a really interesting scene for how Phil viewed Pike because... Her dis- his dismissal of Kirsten's suicide is really fucked up. And he's saying a couple things here that Archer's like, oh, that he's almost like free. Like, oh, yeah, she's gone now. He's stronger. That's a dick move. Not a Philip K. Dick move, but, a, but a, <laughs> an actual like asshole. I'll say asshole move. Um, and then the idea that he's like, oh, yeah, she was afraid she got cancer again and was going to be found out for being on drugs when in reality, again, no, no culpability, no culpability. I am not part of this suicide. And I think that Phil, who was so destroyed by Pike's death when he was in Israel, I think Phil all these years later, this is uh, in hindsight, revisionist history of like him looking back and being like, yeah, he was really flippant about that. Or yeah, he saw that. I don't think Phil saw that at the time. I think Phil saw that when he was writing the Years book in 1981. Huh. Yeah. So I can't prove that. That's just my theory. Um, but I, I think that's how I read this part of the book. And so real life versus novel, I don't care. I'm just looking at the novel and saying this character Angel Archer was looking at him and saying, what a dick. He doesn't even care. And that's from occurred- someone who obviously doesn't care about anything. Yeah. Doesn't well, care. She's about- kind of, I mean, she, like, like Phil, we, we could say, uh, uh, Angel's just a narcissist, right? She's an absolute narcissist. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a smarter I mean, If we want to break down certain qualities. A smarter narcissist. I like that, I like that she cries about the abstract. But about the actual, like tangible things that happen in her life, no feelings whatsoever. There's a disconnect. Go cry about the the thought of you know Bill possibly being in a hospital and sad and and how that that breaks her heart and how he he might not ever like achieve anything in his life because he's he's got that mental deficiency as she puts it, but like. The death of her husband, nothing. Is that what's at the core of your dis- distaste for Angel? Her, the way in I'm which. Not sure. Dis- There's a, I, I think it's many leveled my distaste yeah. for Angel. <laughs> but you're right. <laughs> you there, there is a disproportion. Angel hurt you. 
<laughs> she does seem to have a disproportionate uh, means uh, of reacting to things in a way that is not always, uh, well, that you wouldn't expect, right? Now, I do have something from the coda, but we can save that to talk about the coda. And I, other than that, I'm done on, on um, Bishop Pike slash Archer as just a character. Um, well, so, uh, I, I have one kind of funny thing that I want to mention, and it's the... Uh, it's the I never saw Bill thing again. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, so he, he literally in the book, it says, I, I never saw Bill again. We see Bill about five more times after that. <laughs> and uh, he also talks about like just being next to the famous person and how that to me is sort of it has a meta element where no one was like, hey, Phil. Shouldn't we edit this part out where you fucking said that you never saw this guy again, but then you see him a couple pages later? Like, uh, it, there's some meta element in there where this mistake is not changed. And, and Bill's an android. He, he is the eternal recurrence, right? He keeps coming back even when he's gone of uh, Phil's many hemophrenic androids. He's an android. Right. Yeah, he is Bill. basically an android. You know? But but that that is so it's so easy to fix. But no one ever no copy of this book has ever fixed that. <laughs> I, I, and I'm glad Bill's in there. He like David earlier, you started out by saying, well, this isn't completely uh, uh, controlled. This isn't completely coherent. And Bill is one of the reasons why it's not, I think, uh, yeah. which is why that he's my favorite character. That's why I, I love it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you're going to be the minority report on uh, on the coda, I think, Larry. Um, yeah, well, I, I don't care about that. Yeah. Uh, the, okay, so uh, the other the other issue, and this is an issue throughout, but I'm just going to bring it up now. And we've talked about this a couple of times, but all of Dick's dialogue, I think Dick is a terrible dialogue writer. I'm going to say that straight out. Every voice in Dick's book when they're speaking, sounds like PKD. That's it. No one has a different voice. No one uses any different language. No one uses any different words. They use absolutely the same pitch, tone. Everything is absolutely the same in his dialogue. So to I that, I reply, gobble, gobble. <laughs> <laughs> now, also, I... I tend, to, I tend to agree with uh, Larry quite a bit. In fact, I've had many conversations with many people about this I don't this disagree issue. with Larry either. I'm just However, kidding. I just wanted you, to say gobble, gobble, because that's one person who did speak differently. <laughs> but no, don't. You, there are exceptions, too. Like Tagomi. Yeah, of course. Tagomi, it's a, for instance. It's 45 novels. There's bound to be right. exceptions. Right. <laughs> but no, I think he tr it's not for lack of trying, though, sometimes. That's the thing. Well, that, I just think that wasn't one of his strong points. Yeah, no, for sure. That is not his forte. No, but but sometimes he tried, and again, you know, it didn't. <laughs> it often didn't <laughs> it didn't turn out so well. Yeah, but it, it, in this novel specifically, where you have, I mean, this is about people, right? Mm -hmm. And so you want the people to sound different. You want them to have their personality. You want all these things, but there's none of that in there. It's all everybody basically. Uh, uh, except for maybe Archer, who, who just has more to say than anyone else. Everyone else speaks the same, the same way. Yeah. 
Well, and it's interesting. The same every, syntax. Everything is the same. And you guys would know better. Is there a California sort of affect? Uh, uh, I mean, something. Not in, not in his writing. Yeah. No. I mean, not in the dialogue. I think the book that shows the most difference in, and and has the best dialogue and shows people talking differently is obviously Scanner Darkly. That's the best example of him breaking down. Man in the High Castle. Yeah. yeah. I, 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 I thought I think to Tagomi the way, that staccato with which he speaks because English isn't his first language if I'm not mistaken is among the most uh, uh, you unique um, dialogues that uh, Dick creates for one of his characters. But, in, in, uh, but obviously, in general, he 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 doesn't he doesn't differentiate dialogues. Yes, I agree for sure. And, and right. that I found kind of bothersome in this book specifically. I remember well, thinking that when I first started reading Philip K. Dick and then real because it for, you know, back then I thought I knew everything. <laughs> but, but, but then at the, at the same time, after I read a few books, I'm like, I don't give a shit. This is fucking awesome. I'm going to get it. Right. You know, <laughs> but right. I, I mean, I I work in I, I worked in theater for 20, 25 years, whatever it was. And, uh, you know, the the cadence of voice, everything about voice is important to me. Yep. So not having that in a novel should be more important. But it, reading Dick, it sort of does take a backseat, mm-hmm. which is why I'm not mentioning it. I didn't mention it much until we're on, what, the 39th novel, something like that. <laughs> no, you've mentioned it before, I believe. Uh, yeah, I've, I've mentioned yeah. it, but I haven't made it a point of of conversation. Um, so... We already talked about, uh, so I'm going to move on from Pike, but we'll talk about him more, of course, because he's the center of this novel. But um, Edgar Barefoot um, is based on Alan Watts, the British mystic, who um, was well, I know. famous, uh, yeah. famous think- for bringing Zen to the hippies in California. Okay, okay, yeah. yeah. Uh, Kirsten Lundberg. showed up somewhere in something. Electric Kool-Aid acid test, maybe Hell's Angels or yeah, something. one of those. Um, Ed Kesey thing. Or... So uh, page 33 is important for the introduction of Kirsten Lundberg, who is based off um, Marin Hackett, the um, mother-in-law of uh, Nancy. Um, and so... Well, the mother-in-law of, of Phil. Phil, yeah, uh, Nancy's mother. And there's some interesting things. It says, um, Bishop Archer's future depends on Kirsten not flying into a rage one day and phoning up the Chronicle. His future depends on her unending goodwill. And then... um, This is her freakout. Yeah, and then Jeff, her husband, says, Kirsten is on reds. You don't know that. I suspect it. Her mood changes. I've seen her take them. Yellow jackets, you know, barbiturates, sleeping pills. Everybody takes something. You smoke grass. Um, Yeah, and then, so this is an interesting thing because um, this sets up so much of the dynamic between them that's like the, um, and I think one thing that, especially if you watch like the In Search Of, you'd never think that Marin had this kind of power over Pike. And I think that's one of the reasons why Pike felt so free when Marin killed herself is because I think that they were fighting a lot and they were, you know, 
the fact that they had this secret apartment, she probably did. Uh, like she could have ended his everything by just making a phone call. And so I think this scene is really important and explains why later Pike doesn't seem to be so bummed that his mistress has committed suicide. It's because he probably, I don't know. I'm just reading into this, but I think that's, but this is all, uh, this is all supposition. I mean, this is all sure. One character, you know, sort of creating a scenario, but you think that's what the actual scenario became. Yeah. And my thing is that Pike had these two Pike slash Archer had these two suicides in his life. Like one, his son, and you know, if you're a bishop and you're, you're, you know, it's like that whole thing of like the glass houses, you know, like he had all these suicides related to him and he had all these things going on. It was like, he was already on trial for, you know, heresy, but but also power breeds a certain type of ignorance. Yeah. There, there's a, a, you know, there's, People that have so much power that they they no longer need to worry about the day to day, I don't know, the worries that we have as regular people. You know, they're they're concerned about loftier things as they would like to put them. But then, you know, the the problems of I'm like like Pike saying, I have, you know, I love this woman. It's an infatuation. Basically, it's a a fast love affair that lasts longer than it should. And so him saying that it's it's a uh, something that he can handle and that uh, Angel's worries don't mean a thing is sort of like a, 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 an intentional blindness. Mm-hmm. You know, he's he's looking at it like, ah. No matter what happens, I'm super powerful, so I can get past it. I was going to ask a question, actually. Did Pike, I mean, one of the ways that that's done with, for instance, a celebrity, you know, they have entourages, right, of various yeah. kinds that do their their sort of particulars for them, everyday stuff. Did Pike have one of those? The real yeah. Pike? Yeah. Marin. Oh, just mistress. Oh. Yeah. Oh, okay. He didn't have like a big uh, cabinet or something like that. Uh, uh, it was uh, No, Marin was his secretary, and then... Uh, the woman that after she died, he the woman that was with him in Israel, like took over that role. Oh, huh. yeah. Like like Phil, perhaps in that respect. I mean, Phil always needed somebody to help him yeah. out in that respect. Yeah. So you think that seems true that uh, Pike asked Phil to go with him to Israel? No. Oh, well, maybe he did. Yeah, uh, because they talked about these issues. And that's why time. that's why. uh Pike in the book gets so upset when he says, "Do you want to? You want to sleep with me?" Because <laughs> it was Bill Dick. <laughs> uh, segue. No, speaking, no. of, speaking of uh, homosexual panic, um, <laughs> uh, so Archer's son slash Pike's son. Um, it's funny in the in search of. They ref- they refer to a suicide that he may have had concerns about his masculinity, the way they oh, worked really? it. Oh, really? And uh, Phil goes at this directly on page fifty five. One of the strangest, most perplexing accounts I read concerning my husband's suicide was that he, Jeff Archer, Bishop 
Timothy Archer's son killed himself because he was afraid he was a homosexual. Some book written a number of years after his death, all three um, after all three of them had died, mangled the facts so thoroughly that when you finish reading it, I don't even remember the title or who wrote it, you know less about Jeff and Bishop Archer and Kirsten Lumberg than before you started. It's like, and this is the interesting part. It's like information theory. It is noise driving out signal. It is the, but it is noise posing as signal. So you do not even recognize the noise. The intelligence agencies call it disinformation, something the Soviet bloc relies heavily on. If you can float disinformation into your circulation, you will totally abolish everyone's contact with reality, probably your own included. This that's, like that's the entire world now. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. That's probably the, the smartest part of the book. Yeah, right. <laughs> and it's what you just read is a very uh, it's very science fictional, isn't it? Mm -hmm. yeah. Dystopian I mean, futures and, and and indicative of the degree to which we now live in a science fiction novel. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe somebody once wrote that the science fiction novel's dead now in the 21st century because of this idea. I don't remember who that person is. That's but. one of my theses. Yeah, I mean that's not that's not particularly unique, you know. Yeah. People so, uh, long time. The beginning um, of this novel is is amazing. Uh, Dick, you know, we talked about in the last episode how he obviously had charm. He puts that charm on the page in the first like 30 pages of this. Mm. That uh, that old vagina joke, uh, the, the vagina, it's not about an old vagina, it's an old vagina joke, that kind of thing, where he's, uh, you know, the, just the, the charm and the cleverness comes through in his writing so so distinctly, so fully. In, in those in the those first couple of chapters where it's it's very it's very pithy and, and intelligent and you can see how people would immediately love to be near this guy you know that's uh, at least that's my impression <laughs> let's say. i agree with you and he seems very much in, in, more than ever and rightly so i guess this is the his last published book at least um in command of his authorship you know, at you least know, at least in that first as much as he can you know, that first quarter. Um, right. I, I guess this is more Archer stuff, but I want to talk about the way this book meta comments on Pike's book, right? In some really hilarious ways, but also meta comments on Phil. Um, also, I have the other quote: uh, "Successfully trying someone for heresy in the 1970s was really difficult." That's another quote. <laughs> okay, I just thought that was. Super clever. <laughs> um, on page 104 of the Mariner edition, uh, Bishop Timothy Archer, a lawyer, a scholar, a sane adult, could see a pin on a bed sheet beside his mistress and leap to the conclusion that his dead son was communicating with him from another world. Moreover, Tim was writing it all up in a book, a book that would first be published and then read. He not only believed nonsense, he believed it in a public way. It's interesting. Now, one of the things that the In Search Of, like, one of the conjectures that the In Search Of made is that, like, may, they were like, maybe this happened, maybe that happened. And they suggested that maybe Marin was 
doing all this to make him think his son was still alive. Well, that's exactly what I thought was happening. Okay. Didn't you guys think that? that uh, I I didn't get that from like yeah. stopping the clocks and all that stuff. That it was her. Yeah, I mean that went over my head. I didn't I didn't get that. But but yeah. that's yeah. I think that just yeah. slipped my. I I, I absolutely assumed that it was her stopping the clocks, breaking the mirrors, putting the pins on the bed hmm. to create this illusion that something supernatural was happening. Well, they Archer of, wouldn't wouldn't have done it himself. He even says so. Do you believe that we would do that on purpose, or we would, you know, it's a it's a something had to happen to make him believe this stuff. It didn't just come out of the blue. He didn't create it without certain markers, right? No. Well, he's probably you know he love loves to cultivate ambiguity too. Uh, you think, Are you talking about Dick? Or? <laughs> I'm talking about Dick writing that in as a potential uh, 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 explanation for what's going on, but not confirming it. But he also, I mean, Dick explains it away as in in probably the the clearest terms. He says, you know, the guilt uh, that those two felt over the uh, the suicide of Jeff, you know, and and other aspects of their their relationship, the hidden nature of their relationship brought them to a point where only the supernatural could explain it. Hmm. You know, it could could relieve them of those feelings. Um, <laughs> you got it. <laughs> You're killing me. Well, You're honestly, killing me here. Because I'm already, I'm still going, I'm going back to the book. He's trying to move on, but no, I, I hear what you're saying, Larry. And um, that, that part, so I remember now that you mention it, Repeatedly, there there are these uh, uh, the image of, for instance, the pin going in the uh, in the fingernail, the which finger, is uh, yeah. that's like you know uh, uh, for me anyway, visually that's tantamount to you know uh, um, fingernails on a blackboard. That is not but an the, image, but it's it's not something that actually happened. There's no evidence of that happening. Right. They, what he says is that the the evidence is a pin being on the bed. Hmm. So it's not. It's not that that happened, it's that she said it happened. Right, but I'm saying he repeatedly implants that image uh, or mm -hmm. puts, you know, plasters it on our mind screens, right? Right. I, I remember it like three different times. Yeah. And, uh, uh, but for my part, I, I, for whatever reason, I didn't pick up on that as, as a clue. That's that's all I'm saying. <laughs> I, th I think what you're saying is is uh, uh, there's a thesis, an argument, and you have evidence for it. <laughs> um, all right. Well, back to his book. Yes. Go ahead. Um, hey, by the way, David, what was the name? What's the name of uh, of Archer's book? I can't remember it. Well, In, I'm about to. That's exactly okay. what we're about to talk about. <laughs> so. So here's the thing, like the book that actually Terrible got time. published in the world was called The Other Side, right? And was really? like this scandalous best-selling book about how he communicated with his son on the other side. Now, on page 164 through 167 is the whole scene where Angel is talking to Pike about the book. And um, Kirsten comes up with a title. What do, you what do you think of the title? Here, Tyrant Death. And uh, I wrote, with my highlighter, Bad Phil Title. Right. Um, exactly what I thought. Exactly. <laughs> and this is, of course, a running theme on our show. 
is the bad Phil titles. And I thought he was kind of making fun of himself here. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that, you know, like, oh, do you like this title that I came up with? I think he probably Hell no, did. I didn't like that title. No one likes that title. <laughs> I, I bet here Tyrant Death was really a title that he suggested to Pike. I, I, I right for something. Who knows I, what? Two hundred percent believe that that was the title that he suggested to Pike. Well, I also, I also have uh, on my on my notes. I have uh, talking about transmigration and why that's why he used transmigration instead of any other word. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I'm you interested know, in your thoughts on that. <laughs> the the change, you know, there's all kinds of words he could have used instead of transmigration, but I I feel like Dick who uh, one of one of his greatest, I think one of his uh, greatest assets was being able to use words that are, are not just the right word, but the best word. So, and sometimes they're, they're above my pay grade, you know, and transmigration is one of those words that's above my pay grade. Uh, it, it, it doesn't mean just like, uh, reincarnation or or death or any of those things. It has all those elements plus more in it. It's a perfect word that Phil chose to to describe uh, the death of Timothy Archer. Or, but that's know. also why you're wrong about the coda because the coda. This title explains why the coda is so important. Right? Well, the coda is crap, but uh, it's. <laughs> But no, Do you want to talk the, about the coda now? <laughs> but 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 it, it had transmigration. I agree with you again. Uh, it is the perfect word. If nothing else, it combines uh, you know transcendence mm-hmm. uh, to one other. Uh, uh, you know, that actually that word embodies a lot of Phil Dickian theme. Transcendence as well as my you know migration. He's migrating mm-hmm. to another uh, realm or, or landscape or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, it's it's. It's everything that Phil Dick had ever done in his career in one word. <laughs> so on page 203 is when the, the, we really get into uh, the trip to Israel. And uh, when Timothy Archer flew to Israel, the NBC network mentioned it briefly. They would mention, uh, uh, as they would, the mention of flight of birds, or, uh, a migration too regular to be important and yet something the viewers should be told about. Um, I got a card from him. This is later on the page, but the card arrived after the big news coverage, the late breaking sensational story of Bishop Archer's abandoned Dotson found its rear end off the little rutted winding road up a jutting rock, a gas station map still on the right hand front seat where he left it. But we never get to know what that card said. No. No. Um, which is interesting. But, okay, so there's the real-life events thing. That's the last one. Like, he goes, he went to die um, with his Datsun and his Coke. Um, and uh, I have one question. Do you, either one of you know what double-domed was supposed to mean? I, I tried to look it up, but I couldn't find anything on Double Domed. Uh, it's the context. A, a, the context in, in the novel is, I think it has something to do with the church, but... Breasts? Uh, yeah, well, that's the... <laughs> Always. 
Although, yeah. actually, in this book, well, no, in the later stuff, that that's not uh, his but fetishization of booze. Hughes is double domed about I I think four or five times in mm -hmm. here in the context of the church, but I couldn't find any reference to to that outside of this novel. So, huh. I was wondering if that was something that I just wasn't aware of. Catholic thing, maybe? I don't know. Could be. So the interesting thing about him choosing to write this book as well, which is something that maybe maybe this should have been in the writing and publication history. But anyways, because I'm the guy who's writing the book on the unfinished work of PKD, I know that after Divine Invasion, the first thing he did was write a two-page outline for a novel called The Acts of Paul, which would have been a alternate history novel about the Paul's conversion on the road to Damascus never happening and a guy basically having the Paul conversion story happen to him 2,000 years later, like after Manichaeism became the dominant world religion. That's a lot, I know. But um, where he, he comments on Paul, because he was thinking a lot about Paul, but so for whatever reason, he had this idea for Acts of Paul, and he had the Bishop Pike novel. He chose to write the Bishop Pike novel. However, he does comment on Paul on page 41 um he says um paul you know had been a a pharisee i don't know what that word uh for them a strict no, pharisee is basically the the jewish people in charge of uh of the of jerusalem at that time that's right paul you know had been a pharisee for them a strict observance of the minutia of the torah the law was everything that particular particularly involved ritual purity, but later, after his conversion, he saw salvation not in the law, uh, I don't know that word, uh, which is the state <laughs> of righteousness that Jesus Christ brings. I want to sit down with him here. And then, so he talks a lot about Paul on this page, and then uh, later it says, Roman 5 states, Paul's basic premise that we are saved through the grace and not by his works. It's just that is the worst is that you're not you're not saved by the good you do. You're saved by your belief. Yeah, it's just a horrible idea. It's just interesting to me that he's talking so much about Paul because I think he was thinking so much about it, but he never wrote this novel. And we don't know if he would have came back to that idea of Paul, but we know he was planning to write Owl in the Daylight next. So he may have just abandoned that idea as being too complicated, too yeah, but weird. Where, to where Phil was going after this would have been, like, my jam. Just would have been my jam. Like, he was he was going in this uh, direction of authors that I've, I've read tons of novels of, and it, it would have fit in that pantheon of people I would have would have read religiously back well in you do know that the next the next one was a science fiction novel he he that when we talked earlier that he had the contract for two books the second was out in the daylight and that was a very very science fictional concept it depends on on what he how he wrote it though yeah if he was still in that exegesis mindset it would have been science fiction but it would have been you know well carrying on those themes of of religious understanding well the concept of owl in the daylight like what he was going to be writing is a it's it's a, a phenomenal concept for a novel which is about 
aliens who live on a planet where everybody has their own individual atmosphere. They live in like, so they don't live in a collective atmosphere. So they have no sound. They've never had sound. Oh, wow. And then they come to earth and discover music. And it's like, they think our world is, is heaven because we have this amazing music and it's all about them learning about sound. It was a, a, an incredible concept. Oh, I can see him being totally pretentious about that one, too. Yeah. Is, do you, because if you think of the, the Valis trilogy, you know, culminating in Archer, it's really about, you know, a bird's eye view, uh, an exploration of right ideology and belief. Yeah. I mean, he's invested in probing belief and how it uh, 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 sort of affects people. And it always, you know, if you ask me, the further you go back in history, the more human humanity is a piece of shit because of their dipshit beliefs. <laughs> uh, my, my thesis personally is belief is the end of reason and the beginning of evil. I mean, think of all the wars and humanity. It's little men and their big beliefs. Right. I can't say it enough. Look at culture today and what's happening in the U.S. with higher education, among other things. Little men and their big beliefs. Yeah. Uh, uh, holy hell. But Phil... Again, falling into the biographical trap, uh, uh, the more time I spend with uh, 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 ags in particular, the more I actually <laughs> become, I think, a, 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 a biographical scholar, among other things. But I wonder <laughs> if he, I mean, yes, obviously he was interested in belief and religion and all of this. I wonder if he actually believed, though. You know, it, no, it, he didn't. Like, uh, yeah, no, it was a, I mean, I think he was an agnostic, ultimately not a Gnostic, an agnostic. He, he was an agnostic. That's that's the thing about him, though, is he respected belief, but he couldn't do it himself. Yeah, uh, it's it's to me, it's one of the more powerful aspects of to. his personality is that he wanted to believe and he couldn't. Right. And, and I find myself in a similar predicament. You're right, David. He was who he needed to be, depending upon who he was talking to. If so he was talking to Tim true. Powers, he yeah. absolutely believed. If he was talking to K.W. Jeter, he did not. But that, uh, I mean, that just tells you that he didn't. He was not a believer. Because believers believe. It, yeah. There, There is no company that matters if they believe or not. Believers believe, and if they believe, you know, the harder they believe, the more people get hurt. That's what happens. Well, but see, my thing about it, I actually do think he was a believer to a degree. I think uh, it's interesting to think about um, the uh, exegesis and how much, you know, was just him spinning. That's intellectual study, though. That's not, yeah. that's not belief. Yeah. Well, it's yeah. funny because when you talk about things like where he'll he'll go off on tangents about how the Roman Empire never ended and how we're stuck in time. And then it's like, is he having a thought experiment or does he really think that's happening? Like, you know, like it, that's that's where uh, Professor Wilson's book is going to be so interesting <laughs> because the infinite regressions of of of, you know, how much of this is biography and how much is it, you know? <laughs> and I, I mean, yeah, since, right. since you gave me that idea, you and David Gill, uh, when I'm reading the rereading these books now, I see that infinite regression everywhere, you know, more, more so than I ever have before. Yeah. Yeah. So I do oh. have a quote that I want to read. Go. And uh, it is Bill. So. Oh, so good. Maybe it's your favorite character. That's right. 
Uh, and, and, and we'll talk about it afterwards. Uh, much mental illness stems from people repressing their hostility and trying to be nice, too nice. The hostility can't be repressed forever. Everybody has it. It has to come out. So I uh, had some issues in my youth and uh, some some violent issues, we'll say. And I had to take an anger management class. And, and basically, anger management teaches you that you have to let it out. If you're angry, don't repress it. Let it out, but let it out in a healthy way. And, and that's exactly what he's talking about here. Of course, then he goes on to punch a, a window out. <laughs> but Anthony a might think window. you need that money back from that class. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's a... No, if I if I repressed any of my anger, I'd kill someone. So it it, it has to come out. You know, so I'm just talking. And anger, <laughs> anger management is because it's sublimation, right? You 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 get yeah. mad, you you channel it in socially acceptable ways. I mean, that's yes, exactly what you're. But you can't just say I'm gonna be angry, but I'm not gonna let it out. Right. You know. Right. Because that that builds up, and then you do whatever is happening in America right now. <laughs> we don't need to go into that, but, but uh, I mean, that's, it's great that I, I, he has that in this book. Like the, he says, Bill is the only sane character in the book. And that to me just defined it right there. Is, Which is to say, uh, Phil's calling himself sane there. Even as he calls himself a Heba friend, uh, Heba friend, is it Heba Frenic or Heba? Heba, 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 yeah. It's, all right. it's not called that anymore. It's, uh, and we've talked. It's all, isn't it like schizoaffective or something it's like that? It's a disorganized schizophrenia. Oh, okay. I have one scene that I want to, one part that I hated that before we get to the coda and mm. then get into I our like, final. I like stuff that you hate. Um, Page eighty one. What the hell is with the racist joke and the the that was like terrible. The the Kirsten the, is that the series of racist jokes or the series the, of racist jokes that Kirsten makes, and that could be just it's, like it's I wonder a, a connection that those two have. Yeah, it's just um, that whole scene. Like it doesn't stop. Like after it starts, like getting into the racist stuff, like I don't even want to repeat the, I don't even want to read oh, the. Book. Oh dear me! Let's clutch some pearls. Well, <laughs> it's but, but in its context, is he trying to develop a familiarity between two white characters? I guess. I mean, that is basically what it is: is a yeah. a, a connection that these two have. It's like a a, a bit. It's a right. bit that these two carry out. Neither yeah. one of them is racist. But they tell the racist jokes as a bit that that connects them, right? I, I just that, and I understand. I understand your your dislike of that of that thing is we yeah, it, we all just we all dislike just, those things. It's so. just an ugly scene. I, I just I and I, it it does come back later too with the uh, there's a Mexican joke later, but yeah, um, well yeah, it gets both. But then it's also. But, you know, well, there's the guy, the barefoot, who takes care of two Mexican children until their parent comes home. So, I mean, if you want this to be 
biography or autobiographical and and stuff like that. You, you're going to have to accept those things with the other things. But oh you know, yeah, absolutely. Weirdly, I think possibly Phil might be with stuff like that. He might try, be trying to convey, and there are other for me anyway signs of this. Convey that he's in fact not racist. Yeah, that in fact he has a familiar. You know, the, the whole uh, hey, I have black friends. That sort of thing, writ large. That he has a familiarity with that culture. The boomer, I'm not racist. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Honestly, I have a black friend. (laughs) Yeah, well, um, yeah. yeah. It's horrible. That that was not, uh, yeah, that was just not. But, you know, the further we, again, the further we go back in time, the worse things get. And in this case, the more racism is embedded in, in society and culture, you know? Yeah. But so he's, I mean, this is, but David, to be honest, in that time, that was supposed to be a sign of non-racism. Yep. Yeah. So, I get it. I get it. It's just, it was, but I understand your, your modern sensibilities. <laughs> I mean, hey, don't get us wrong. It is racist, but I do think that it was Phil trying not. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's so, yeah, it's so backwards. Well, I was kind of waiting for somebody to be like, hey, stop talking that way or something like that. I I don't know. It was just it was hard. I just didn't like it. But um, I think. But yeah, you know, you're fine with Dick having these female characters that are. Absolute- oh, no, I'm not. I'm not fine with that at all. I hate that about about a lot of his work. That's one of the reasons why I can why you guys love Clans of the Alphane Moon and I don't. You know, like, but she was an asshole. Well, but I thought that was a really <laughs> ridiculous character. Yeah, we're not we're not going to get into that one. Anymore. No, we're not getting into Clans of the Alphane Moon. But so but, let's get to the coda because the coda. So so we can end this at some point. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. The coda. Um, okay, look. You, you know, uh, should I gonna... should I lay out my Minority Report first, and yeah, then you guys can yeah. respond to it do that uh so i i saw no value in it other than the doctor telling off uh angel because i there was no there was no need for archer to come back in any kind of way the story is 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 finalized when when she you know talks about her the the robot part you know this is a robotic this robotic that whatever she doesn't there there is no accomplishment at the end of the end of the coda there there's there's no bright side there's no dark side there's no side whatsoever it's just should she take in bill which i guess was a minor plot point in the second chapter you know that that her and her husband should talk to bill and she said no, um, but I, I did not see why it was there. All right, you ready for me to argue? Yeah, go uh, for it. Go for I'm it. I'm also gonna uh, uh, make uh, Professor Wilson's head explode because this is gonna be heavily, heavily structuralist uh, writing talk. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, because it's funny because part of me, I know what a lot of people are thinking is that this part of the book is where he loses his coherence and his structure. But I, I disagree because this is to me where the parallels and reversals are set up and paid off. 
in, in the book where um, and anybody who knows my philosophy of storytelling knows I love me some parallels and reversals and um, set up some payoffs. So to me, this the title and everything and the whole story, the payoff is is that Phil observing Bishop Pike's life and telling the story of Timothy Archer, the setup and payoff is, is that Archer comes back in some form in this spiritual way that he like either so Pike in real life was either full of shit, right? And making all this stuff up about talking to his son. And he got all this notoriety and fame because he was going on Canadian TV and talking to his psychic, talking to his son through his psychic, right? And so the parallel, the reversal of that is that Pike comes back in this novel and is living in this other dude and is speaking to him. But of course, this guy could be full of shit, right? So. To me, that's the parallel. That's the setup and the reversal. That's the reason to tell the whole novel in the first place is to have Timothy Archer transmigrate to the spiritual realm and speak back to the characters. That's the story. That's why the coda works. That's why. That's ridiculous. (laughs) Fucking ridiculous. Wait, Lair, did you like the end of Ubik? Where, uh, like, when when Ron- I I rarely like uh, Phil K. Dick Coda, because oh, that. that's it does the same thing with uh, when Glenn Run it puts basically the last chapter leaves uh, ends on a note of ambiguity wherein Glenn Runcitter he he he, um, he thinks he's in half life that that's what Phil floats whereas in the in the chapter before that if you were to end there there would have been more closure. Right, uh, right. Uh, so he like opens that door and leaves it open. Is that the main thing that you? Because that 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 is there's an open door at the end of this. Well, no, 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 no. That's the, well, we don't know. We don't know if he really is came. That he's closing the door by, like David says, he's closing out the. You know, the he's adding those those reversals and parallels. He's completing what David says is a story. Yeah, Whereas I, I want it, I want it to end where this person is going on with her life, not mm-hmm. necessarily knowing where the future is going to take her. Oh, yeah. I see. so you're th- you're thinking of Angel. I'm thinking more of Art uh, Archer, insofar as well, we don't know. Archer is the life. subject, but he's not the uh, he's, he's not, not the protagonist, sure, or the narrator for that matter. Yeah, yeah. he's not, he's yeah. not the character that we're supposed to care about. Right. Yeah, that's true. Well, so Archer slash Phil, or Angel slash Phil, are have to, you know, like she goes on wondering if this guy or if Archer really came back or not. So you know, but I like the idea that we get this version of it where where he, where at least someone thinks he. But it's a, it's a chicken shit comeback. <laughs> it's, it, it really is. It's not like he came back. Right. I mean, it's. I would have liked to seen, you know, I'm turned into fucking Palmer Eldridge or something when he came. <laughs> you know, crawl out of someone's mouth. You know, yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. If you're going to go for it, go for it. Right. You know, the. Uh, so uh, the idea that the bill is supposed to just accept, all oh, right, it's just another voice that I hear is just ridiculous. Come on. All right. 
Well, that's fine. I think you both make valid points, actually. Uh, I think I, I could side with either of you. <laughs> I think I'm going to side with Larry, though. Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, maybe David. <laughs> well, we, I don't think you would agree with me that it's solid or coherent. I think you like it because it's because you find it... Um, like kind of a chaos agent to the rest of the book, yeah, right? Yes, I, <laughs> yeah. I do enjoy chaos agents. Yes, yes. That's so you, you like it for a different reason because you interpret it differently, which is fine. Mm. Right. Which is actually the interesting part that we are all kind of seeing it in a little bit of a different way, which is good. Yeah. Um. All right. Um. Final judgments on Timothy Archer. Uh. I'm going to start by saying I believe I gave this book um, uh, four out of four uh, Coke cans found in the Israeli desert. Um, <laughs> four out of five Coke cans found in the Israeli desert um, is what I think I'm going to go with, with with Timothy Archer. But uh, And I think that it's overall a really good book. Uh, I... I can't divorce like the what I know about the interesting real life character for the from... eighth book in a row. <laughs> yeah, and I don't think it's actually a lot of people the question one thing I will say that I think is very different and this may be because I've spent so much time studying Owl in the Daylight. I haven't written that chapter yet, that's next, but I've been I've done all the reading for it. And um a lot of people put a lot of weight on this book for the direction that Phil was going in his career. And I think that is wrong because mm -hmm. I think Owl in the Daylight would have been a very different book. And I don't know what direction he would have taken the rest of his career, but he was returning to a very science fictional concept next and, and a very good science fictional concept and a very weird one. And I honestly don't know if he could have pulled it off. But I'd like to think he he would have, but I don't right. think this one represents the direction he's going in his life. I yeah okay. So all right, Larry. Well, uh, let's see. What am I giving this? Okay, so it's minus this, and then according to the Pritchard scale, it gets no, no it's a. Uh, <laughs> uh, I actually had someone say something to me the other day about like the the scale they use for rating books and I thought it was ridiculous it was just like dead poet society in the Pritchard scale it comes to this point um anyway uh I'm gonna give this four and a half um moxas if you guys remember what a moxa is I don't remember it's an epiphany ah uh, How did I but, end up giving it less stars than you, even though I said way more positive things about it, which is interesting. <laughs> well, uh, I, I'll tell you why. Is uh, It has flaws. It's obviously flawed. I didn't like the last 35, 40 pages, whatever it was. Um, I, I think the female characters are poorly written, as usual, in a Phil K. Dick book. Um, but there, there's effort put forth there. But this has a huge, huge nostalgia factor for me. It brings me back to the time when I was young and I was 
explorative and I was discovering all new things, new new ways of looking at the world. And usually, like like he even says in the book, I get all these quotes and stuff from books, you know, plays, poetry, you know, that's how I was looking at the world back then. And this is one of the books that made me think that way. The way I think now is partly based on this book because it affected me in, in a way of looking at things through a different lens than I had as a, you know, 19, 20 year old, whatever it was. And that's beautiful, man. (laughs) And uh, the story itself was interesting to me to hear about this, you know, Bishop's fall from grace and how it affected the people in his lives. And the, it could have been more soap opera ish, I guess, but I'm glad it wasn't. I'm glad it was more meditative and, and, you know, contemplative rather than just a, a, you know, a tabloid sort of review of someone's life. Yeah. What a dick. Like, you know, like what an asshole, like overall, it's an interesting character study of an asshole. I think. Yeah, exactly. And, most assholes are interesting in in study, so that's uh, a, that's my review. Professor Wilson, uh, I give it three out of five. Hebephrenics, <laughs> and uh, I I um, like it for similar reasons uh, uh, that like its meditative quality. I, I really like that. Um, I, I like above all, I think, how it's it's kind of, for me anyway, a thematic retrospective on uh, PKD's canon. Loses stars, however, of course, because there's too much coherence and control. And not, <laughs> not enough chaos and ambiguity. Goddamn storytelling. <laughs> I know. Can't stand me. Uh, now, uh, next we will discuss how we think this could be made as a film. Do we think this could be made as a film? Come on. This is a film. <laughs> I mean, it's simple. Yeah. I do yeah. think it could make a very interesting movie in the right hands mm-hmm. and, and you could make it for a pretty low budget, although it would have to be period. That would be something. Or what about, what about like an Oliver Stone sort of with that weird sort of editing shit that he did for a while with, you know, uh, natural born killers and Nixon and stuff like that. Like something yeah, super that kind of hyper, hyper edited and, and weird. Well, especially like, you go full paranormal activity with the seance scenes and everything. Right? Like, yeah, like yeah. Super weird with it. You know, you could go either way. This, this, I think this could work too is, is like a uh, sort of case study of the time in which it was written, you know, mm-hmm. and, and like a period piece. A twenty four could be the people for the job, and you can or, still be or, making or you it make now. A movie of the week out of it. I mean, it's that, it's that broad. Yeah, you know, it could be just like we'd see it on Lifetime or something. David, know? did you say they're make? What did you say? I, I missed. I'm just said. kidding. I said that they, they oh, could okay. make it right now for A twenty four. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, they could hire us today. We're ready. I, I actually <laughs> wouldn't mind seeing the Lifetime version of this. Oh yeah. Are you yeah, lifetime has You're just my mistress. Yeah. 
you hold all control over me. <laughs> oh, Lord. One phone call to the Chronicle. And I'm Him praying in church with the rosary beads and everything. And Yeah. Um, and I do highly recommend, you, know, you rather than wait for the movie, you can watch The In Search Of, but you'll definitely have a few moments where you'll you'll be calling BS on it. Um, I, I, I'll put that in the, uh, or the link to the YouTube in the Yeah. Show. And anybody should be watching In Search Of anyways, because it's just fun to hear Leonard. And by the way, Leonard Nimoy didn't believe in any of that shit. It was a paycheck, um, so which is funny. Um but, but he's uh, damn good on it. He's <laughs> damn good because he had a great yeah. voice, you know. So. Hey, what's his? Uh, what, what's the um, the episode there? There was like six seasons of that. I know. In it was. Recall, so this is in the sixth season. Episode sixth season, two, episode twenty-two. Oh, was it twenty-two? Okay. And I looked at the release date, and and it aired exactly. It, it aired in February of eighty-two. One okay. month before Phil died. <laughs> wow, so, I'm watching that tonight. It's partially responsible for we Phil's have the, death. The links on our <laughs> our, our. He was so outraged thing. of how they got the story wrong that this it was part nice. of his death, right? Um, and uh, I'm of course kidding, but um, yeah, and I, I now that I know that all the in search of episodes are basically on YouTube, I'm you know. I, I used to the Sci-Fi Channel replayed those in the '90s, um, like uh, at late at night, and I remember I used to watch those all the time. My, my aunt recorded all the episodes, so I'm when I was a of. kid, she would show them to me when she babysitted me. She would just show like episode after episode of Twilight Zone, or she recorded everything on VHS. So it would be like in search of or. You know, uh, some some shit. Like well, that. she was a better babysitter than Phil. Than who? Uh, <laughs> when Walter Nelson, when Phil uh, babysat Walter Nelson and taught him how to shoot a gun. Right. Um, <laughs> well, I don't know if it's better, but uh, you know, um, the things you learn when you listen to the Dickheads podcast. Yeah. So <laughs> yeah, you right. can too listen to the Walter Nelson interview where he talks about Phil babysitting him. Um, <laughs> All right, Larry, do you have a, a dick-like suggestion for this episode? I actually have, uh, like, a group of 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 uh, dick-like su- suggestions. And they're, they're solely based on this novel. So this is not about the rest of his books. This is not okay. about uh, Blade Runner. This is not about any of that stuff. It is uh, based on works that I read at the time I read this book and sort of have that same appeal as this book does. So um, it's basically the first five novels by Tom Robbins, you know, especially Still Life with Woodpecker, uh, the conversation that the two main characters have about the difference between an outlaw and a criminal is fantastic. You know, even cowgirls get the blues, another roadside attraction, all the everything in there is sort of along this vein, but much more entertaining, let's say. <laughs> uh, and then there's uh, Carrie Fisher's uh, pair of novels that are are full autobiographical, uh, Surrender the Pink, 
and Postcards from the Edge. Fantastic books. Everyone should read those. I mean, she's Carrie Fisher. She's Princess Leia. How do you well, not read her book? She also is one of the most notorious behind-the-scenes script doctors that, yeah, like, that, she, that she, no one knows about. No one knows about that she fixed dialogue on scripts like all the time. Yep. And she would be brought in to just tweak dialogue because she got so good at it on the set. And, um, you know, there's supposedly like there's a lot of great lines in movies that just like got tweaked by Carrie Fisher. But, you know, so read those books. Just saw her in the birds. She is clever. She is witty. She is smart. She is. And it shines through in her writing. I forgot that she was. I love Tom Robbins, incidentally. Uh, I, I forgot that she wrote. I mean, she she like put out. How, how I think she put out like four or five different novels. But okay. these are uh, the two that I thought were the best for me. Yeah. Uh, and then uh, I mentioned him last time, last show. But uh, Richard Bach, everything up to uh, one or the one after that, which is still flying or something like that. Uh, it's, it, these are books about a, a pilot who talks about life, you know, metaphysics, joy, pain, all that. So religion, obviously. So th- those are my recommendations. Uh, Professor Willison, do you have a dick-like suggestion this month? So I am one, and it has to do with uh, that book I'm writing on PKD's biographies. This is a, one of the creative biographies. I'm going to show you. It's Oh, wow. You guys read this? Are you two? Uh, you know, Anthony read that. Uh, oh, okay. Yeah, at some point, but we didn't. I haven't read it. Yeah. It's uh, just called Philip K. Dick, a comics biography, graphic novel, or graphic, you know, biography. Laurent Casey, I guess, and Mario Marchesi. I think they're Indian. French. In, from India. Oh, is it French? Well, Laurent, is it L-A-U-R-E-N-T? Yes, it is. That's the the, the surname. Right. The forename is French for sure. Yeah. Um, but yeah, well, I bet it, it. Maybe it is. Who knows? But but it's uh, it's in English and uh, it's pretty good. You know, it, it is um, really popular in France. So is it? We just got an email from France. So. Oh yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's not. It's it's not that. Wow. They they months. love Phil over there. We <laughs> we they do. Um, so yes, that's my recommendation. Well worth a read if you enjoy comics and PKD. I've been reading a lot of nonfiction about Phil as well, and I two that I want to recommend. I think I mentioned this one last time, but I actually finished it. The Writers of the Twenty First Century series. Uh, so this is the book from eighty two. But I talked about that last time, so I'm not going to talk about it. But this one I just finished, and. Uh, Professor Wilson has this one, too. After engulfment. Now, one of the reasons why I'm going to encourage this one heavily is because we are going to have Ellen Greenham on the show eventually after. Don't make uh, fun of it is what you're telling me. Got it. No. So after engulfment, cosmicism and neocosmicism in H.P. Lovecraft, Philip K. Dick, Robert Heinlein and Frank Herbert. It's about cosmic horror, basically. Um, and there's almost as much fill in here as there is Lovecraft, to be honest with you. And there's a lot of Dune in here as well. There's only a little bit of Heinlein. Um, she only really looks at two books, but 
I do love the over the top academic language in here is awesome. Um, I'm going to read just one little thing. And this is talking about do androids dream of electric sheep? The human creatures fear in facing the possibility of insignificance and biological inferiority is explored. Simply put, through the engulfing process of assimilation, the Borg adds to its collective hive. She's talking about Star Trek, by the way. And in doing so, the highlight... So highlight the fact that human biology alone cannot guarantee the human creature's survival against others in the universe. That's comparing the Borg and Star Trek to two androids dream of electric sheep. It's very intense academic language. There are several sentences in here that just made me laugh at how over the top they were written. But there's a lot of Scanner Darkly, a lot of Three Stigmata, a lot of talk about the short stories, a lot of Second Variety, a lot of The Electric Ant. Um, uh, that short story. So it's very good stuff. And when um, two thirds of us have read this book who have it, we will set up an interview with Ellen Greenham, who is an Australian lecturer, who apparently also knows a lot about Russian science fiction. Wait, she's Australian? She's Australian. Yeah. I might, it, be, I, I it, might have to do that one. Incidentally, uh, oh, but, uh, that yeah. th- those... Uh, the artist and the author of that graphic novel, they're French, you were right, Larry. Um, who's the publisher of that book, David? Uh, Hippocampus Press, who f- focuses mostly on Lovecraftian oh, fiction okay. and nonfiction. Do they mostly publish academic stuff? No, they publish. Oh, no. They're, they, yeah. they're about 50-50. They do scholarship oh, okay. and fiction. Okay. Um, so all of S.T. Joshi's like scholarship on Lovecraft comes from Hi- Hippocampus, but also... For example, um, uh, John Shirley's most recent like fantasy novel, The Sorcerer in Atlantis, came out from Hippocampus, and his collection of Lovecraftian fiction, Lovecraft Alive, came out on Hippocampus. So they do fiction and nonfiction. So, but yeah, so that's my dick-like suggestion. And on that note, the next book is The Broken Bubble. Do we have that pulled up to read the? Uh, the next book I have is The Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly the Same. All right. You want I mean, me to read a little bit about that? Do that just in case, hat. and then we'll close it out. Okay, yeah. yes, just in case. Uh, the Man Whose Teeth Were All Exactly Alike, sometime between 1958 and 1962, Leo Runcible, a liberal Jew, is working in the real estate field. On learning what Walt D'Ambrosio, Leo's neighbor, has had a black visitor to his house in a, quote, lily-white suburb of Marin County, California. Potential purchase... It's it's Marin. Oh, Marin, excuse me. Uh, Potential purchasers interrogate Runcible about the matter and ultimately incur his wrath over their narrow-minded bigotry. He thereby fails to close the deal and forfeits their friendship and a precious commission as well, and so forth. Huh. It sounds like the whole book. Like, <laughs> oh, now you don't need to read it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Wikipedia could use some editing there. Um, no, it's, it seems like he's kind of uh, laying race cards quite a bit at the uh, with these. these uh, well, mainstream. see, uh, Dick was always uh, like anti-racism, but as we know now, his anti-racism comes across as racism. <laughs> right. Yes. All right. On that note, let's close this puppy down. Um, (laughs) 
Uh, on that note, uh, what we always say, keep it paranoid. Be paranoid. Stay paranoid. All that. All right. On that note, we are done. <laughs>